0: Okay, shall we Super Mario Brothers it? Okay. Uh,
1: okay. On so three, well, I guess. Okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you want me to do the count? Yeah. Okay, three, two, one. Okay, I hope that, that worked. Work. I Th- didn't do the last cool. one, but That should work. Okay. Well, when this is all fucked up, it's your fault. I okay. just want you to know. I'm sorry, yeah. Andre. <laughs> we cannot speak his name. <laughs> then, He's just going to edit it out. <laughs> well, you know what? We can speak it as much as we want. Hey, Andre, how's it going? Yeah, Andre. Yeah.
1: But, I mean, so, Andre, we're just going to drop your name at in random mm-hmm. intervals, and you will have to find mm-hmm. them. Because we are so yeah. thankful for the work that you're doing for us. Yeah,
0: We are, and it's not nice of us to harass you. <laughs> Absolutely not. Thank you, Andre, for your yeah. hard work. You are cool.
1: Thank you very much. I'm going to fucking harass you. I will try to not stutter and speak very clearly and have an easy-to-edit voice. (laughs) Shall we start? Let's do it. Take us away, Dax. Welcome to Codex Rex. My name is Dax, and I am your host. And I am your co-host, Tyler. We are making a podcast about video game history, and in each episode, one of us tells a story about some kind of video game-related topic, and the other one listens and kind of uh, gives the input. Is that right? That's me. I'm the listener. You are the input. And it's
0: it's a Docs episode. It is a Docs episode. I'm so excited. It's a Docs episode. You know how long it's been? It's been forever.
1: I'm so fucking yeah, I, excited. I, I didn't have a lot of time for episodes, but I made one. Yeah. I, I I made promises about doing one much earlier, but I, I only got to do it now and actually we are planning to release this on christmas on christmas uh, okay so this is a christmas episode it's a christmas so, episode uh, do you
0: realize that that
1: puts our lovely editor on a deadline did you hear that yeah if it's not a if it's not a christmas episode you can um wait you, you can edit this out and we can just say this is a winter solstice episode <laughs> like uh, around the time of the winter solstice we also did an episode and this also includes like everybody that does not celebrate mm-hmm. christmas like it's it's cool for everybody to celebrate winter solstice winter solstice is a cool thing right? yeah
0: we could call it a holiday episode or if it holiday takes you episode. even longer we could just say this is a an episode from when it was cold
1: outside it's a chilly <laughs> episode <laughs> Brr. It's a, oh wait except Dude, we have, like, an Australian demographic. Oh, shit. You' shit. not winter for them. You can't... <laughs> Fuck. I'm sorry, Australia. I'm sorry.
0: Okay? The world revolves yeah. around me and the United towards
1: States.
0: Our southern-aligned uh, southern friends. That's right. Yeah. yeah. See? I guess, you know.
1: Well, sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Docs, what have you been up to?
1: I've, I've been, uh, you shall start. How, what have you been up to?
0: Um, okay, I could go on a long, winding tale about what's going on in my life. But honestly, I just want to talk about 3D printing. I got a 3D printer, and it's the fucking coolest thing ever. Uh, other than... A, wait, let wait, me, wait, 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 let me, let me, let. is it a,
1: like there's resin printers and there's the other ones, right?
0: Yeah, like a filament printer. So I have a is resin a filament printer. filament or
1: resin? a resin? A resin, yeah. Resin yeah, resin. Yeah, resin.
0: Yeah. <laughs> a raisin printer. That's just uh, that's just grapes. You just let them dry yeah. out.
1: <laughs> no, it lets them dry, and then turns them into little figurines. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, um, no. So it's a resin printer, and um, luckily, um, here I'm going to name drop some people who listen to the podcast. illicit um, Owl and Rousseau have both been huge resources for me, and um, luckily, where I'm living right now, I have a space where I can do that. And I have just been making, I've been making all kinds of figurines. I've been making Christmas presents. I've been like, anytime I'm like, oh man, I really wanted that miniature, but I can't afford it. I'm like, oh, now it costs me. 12 cents huh awesome uh so like today i just uh i fully 3d printed an entire small 40k army for andrea and we played her first game and it was a blast so that's been my main hobby recently
1: that's really cool yeah what about you man um i've i've i i've i kind of i've 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 been done doing a lot of reading for some reason like do you know this meme about um, ask your boyfriend how often he thinks about the roman empire <laughs> no, no i don't know this it. meme no hit me with Just, it that, like some like i think i don't know how it started but there's something that uh some women found out that their boyfriends basically constantly think about the roman empire <laughs> and um <laughs> okay and and uh, why i'm mentioning it is because i started i, I really got into the roman empire and i st- i read like five different books about it and and i have like three youtubers that i listen to and i'm i'm a huge <laughs> uh nerd about the um about the late republic of the roman empire now uh, and this is <laughs> this is really weird and i don't know how this happened Listen, I I think it has procrastination reasons or something. I just <laughs> wanted to avoid something else.
0: Uh, that is typically how my brain works when I have a million things going on, too. Right. right. Like, I'll be like, hmm, I've always wondered where the first... You know, like, uh, this is literally something I was Googling the other day. Uh, Here's your fun fact that has nothing to do with video games. Do you remember that, like, time in music where everybody would hide, like, a secret song at the end of a track? Or, yeah. like, at the end of a CD. Uh, it is thought that the first instance of that comes off of Abbey Road, the Beatles album. Mm, yeah. Because an editor didn't like a transition between, like, as part of a song. And he cut it out and threw it at the end. And Paul McCartney loved it Ooh. and kept it in there and thought it was funny. And that then it became catchy and everybody did that. But anyway, that's the kind of dumb shit that I look up when I'm supposed to be doing other work. And then I'm like, Andrea, did you hear that? Did you hear wh- about this thing at the end of Abbey Road? And she's like, did you like did you do any of that stuff for your job apps or like anything and i'm like oh, yeah 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 i'll send it like it doesn't matter when they get the emails okay this is important now yeah yeah, yeah. so i totally Fair, get it yeah, yeah I'm, I'm on cool. there
1: is there any <laughs> video games that you played recently
0: oh man okay so interesting that you say that uh so we haven't like put out an episode since like may because our lives have been insane um and so i started thinking like what have i played between The last episode in this one. And so, what comes to mind is I beat Soma. Have you played Soma? Yeah. A long time ago. Right. It's kind of an older one. I beat Soma and I really enjoyed sort of the um, existential dread that that game brought about. Uh, I also beat the Final Fantasy VII remake, at least the first part. Oh, nice. That was a fun sort of romp for like fans of the series. I felt like maybe they stretched it out a little bit in some ways, that they kind of maybe... Shouldn't have. But aside from that, it really felt, it was pretty cool. It was, it was neat to see. Um, currently I'm churning through, I've been playing a lot of Dark Tide, which is sort of like, uh, the Warhammer version of Vermintide. Uh, I started, I chip away at Octopath Traveler 2 like once every couple of days. That's pretty much what I'm up to.
1: What have you played? Uh, first my life had been eaten by Armored Core, and then my life got eaten oh, yeah. by Baldur's Gate so yeah that's the armored core i have entirely like completed in its entirety and i can't play it anymore it's done i can't touch it um but baldur's gate is still chipping away at me so that's good
0: um how much time did you put into armor core i'm just curious because it looks completely up my alley and i'm worried that if i touch it i like my life will crumble to bits and i will be Um, able to accomplish nothing
1: let me just check my hours I think it's like 60 or 70, and I really tried to go for completion. Yeah. I didn't get all the, like, there's like a rating system. I didn't get all the S ratings, but I just gave up at some point. Uh, oh, it's six, 60 hours. That's a pretty solid amount of time for a game. It's a good amount of time for a game. But for, like, for Gate, I'm not even I'm not even half done with it, and I have 140 <laughs> hours already. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that
0: sounds right i saw that they like released like um i don't know, honor mode or something hardcore mode whatever it's called
1: yeah i'm playing it right now it's really cool oh man
0: that seems really like scary in a way that i kind of like though right like if you, yeah, it's really cool if you mess it, up you mess up it, that's it like
1: it makes the game really challenging it's nice
0: how cool yeah i like it's so interesting because like you you've jumped onto two big releases of the year, right? And it's cool yeah. it's cool to hear about those. So Okay. Well, um some housekeeping things. Uh if any yes. of you want to send us get in touch with us, uh you can hit us up on um send us an email at codexrexpodcast at gmail dot com. And you can find me on Twitch. Uh I'm just Vegan Tyler on Twitch. And that's it perfect you ready to start um do you think we should start the episode dude let's do it i'm so excited i'm so excited it's a docs episode
1: okay so uh for anyone new to the podcast what you have to know about Ducks episodes, that is, I, I sometimes do normal episodes where I'd actually talk about like the development of a game or something, but I'd also do episodes where I go into the deep, deep basics of where certain video game concepts come from. And today is such an episode. If you were expecting like something like, well, how did they do Final Fantasy? That's it's not going to be like this. We're going to start like more than a hundred years ago, and we're going to slowly work ourselves towards video games. And we're actually only going to talk about video games for a very short time in this episode. And you will have to handle this. And for those who know and like my episodes, I think you, I think you will enjoy it because it's an it's an interesting thing that we're going to talk about. We start in in Germany more than two hundred years ago, and what you have to know. About Germany, that it didn't exist more than 200 years ago. Before 1871, Germany was like it, it wasn't a unified state. This means, as a country, it's like a, around 100 years younger than, for example, the United States, and it is not that much older than Australia. The region that we now recognize as modern Germany, it was like a complex mosaic of independent states, each with its own unique history, system of governance, and like also cultural identity and stuff like that. And this period before eighteen seventy one is often referred to as the German Confederation, because it, it was it was like an alliance, but it was a loose alliance. However, the roots of this root, um, of this loose alliance they can be traced back to something that is called the Holy Roman Empire, and this played like a a significant role in in shaping the state of germany before 1871 and this holy roman empire was like a sprawling and highly complex political entity and it lasted for like more than a thousand years and it was led by someone that was called the holy roman emperor i'm you're looking at me like I'm, why am i talking this is civilian history no i'm just I'm laughing
0: because i'm like ask your co-host how much he thinks about the holy roman empire
1: <laughs> <laughs> i, I more more than you would think. <laughs> um, and, and the Holy Roman, the emperor, in actually in German is referred to as Kaiser, which you guys maybe know as, it, it, it actually traces back to the, etymologically, to the word Caesar. Caesar led, led to Kaiser. And so the entire Holy Roman Empire actually traces itself back to the Roman Empire. It, there was also kind of a, like, um, Uh, always kind of a trace back to the roots of Europe, um, even like more than a thousand years later. So this Holy Roman Empire included several different powerful kingdoms. And for example, Bavaria was a kingdom within the Holy Roman Empire, which I guess is the most well-known German state even today. But like other very influential members of the Holy Roman Empire, and later of the confederation, were, for example, the kingdom of Prussia. Um, Not Russia, Prussia with a P, but also Austria, which is like its own country today. And also, uh, like, not just kingdoms, but also like a duchy called Brunswick. But many, many more, like thousands of different little countries. And, like, one of the most important features of this Holy Roman Empire was its lack of a strong central authority. Like, there was the emperor, but they didn't have any power. They were just, like, a representative role. And the real political power lay in the hand of the single states and of the rulers of the single states. Now, your question might be, why are we doing this epilogue? And the thing is that we are actually starting this episode in Prussia. And not in Germany, and I want to use the right terminology, and I want you, like, I didn't want to say, this episode starts in Prussia, and all of you go, what the fuck is a Prussia, and like, <laughs> will it be on Steam sale this autumn? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, Prussia is was a former state in the German Confederation, and
0: this is where our story starts. How much do you think you could buy Prussia for on Steam? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know, probably. Not much because it doesn't exist anymore.
0: <laughs> heavily discounted, <laughs> heavily discounted state that doesn't exist. I heard the developers abandoned it. Like I wouldn't <laughs> buy it.
1: <laughs> they absolutely did. They merged it with Germany. Um, <laughs> anyway, so we start out in Prussia, in the town of Gartz, in 1743, a bit less than 300 years ago. On the 8th of November, a child is born, and his name is Johann Christian Ludwig Helwig. And since you Americans can't really say that, Johann Christian Ludwig Helwig. Incredible. like four names. And since you Americans can't really say that, like you can't even say Johann, we will call him John. I think John is a good simplification. Oh, Johnny and, boy! Johnny uh, boy yes. Ludwig! <laughs> oh, yeah, Ludwig. Very good, Tyler. I did it. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So John, he was he was kind of born into a humble family, um, and there's no problem with that per se, but except that there isn't really much anything written down about it because he was just like he was like a a basic guy from a basic town doing nothing but basic things. Um, But he did write a lot about his own adolescence later on, so we kind of have his autobiography to fill the gaps. Um, we know that his dad was the mayor of the town he lived in, and both of his parents wanted him to get an education um so they sent him to school which was not which which they didn't have to there was no like mandatory school um and you have to know that school back then was something else like he had to he had to learn Latin and biblical texts and songs and it was based around Discipline and memorization and punishment. It was a different kind of school. Nothing that we can imagine. And not to delve too deep into this, but this rough contact with, um, with the education system would absolutely leave a mark on him. You know, like how we often go into how our video game developers enjoyed something as a kid. And then this hobby that we kind of figure out about them kind of goes full circle later on, like, um we we like we see something that they like to do, and then we find that the kind of the their creation later on kind of we rediscover in in the thing that they will give to us and there's something that John loved to do as a kid, and we will find that in his later life. We know about it because he wrote it down because he was a huge history nerd, and like he loved to old read old history books. He read the scripts of Julius Caesar, the biography of Alexander the Great, and he was like, especially into stories about war. And he actually, um, he is described as a really pleasant person. But for some reason, I I can't help but think that, like, teenage John as this kind of scary nerdy kid in school, that you are kind of like... you're kind of nervous about because they keep (laughs) dropping the most obscure knowledge about human atrocities in the most inadequate situations. Were you that kid? I kind of, in my mind, he's uh, yeah. Yeah. We only that kid like it, like he was the odd guy that never really fit in. (laughs) Um, But he also, he liked to read Robinson Crusoe, which was a huge hit at the time by Daniel Defoe. And he did not only read about war, when he was 13, his hometown was actually occupied by anti-Prussian um, forces coalition. And when he was 16, the war was still going on. So the, he basically lived in war times for three years during his adolescence, um, during which he was sent in to school in another town called Stettin. His dad wanted to continue his studies and he wanted to focus on law more than, like in, in his old school, he would like, mostly learn about religion and his dad wanted Mm -hmm. to to learn more about law because, according to John, his dad wanted him basically to follow him in his footsteps to become a government official. He wanted John to be like a, a government clerk. Okay, so he wants him
0: to work in the government, not like learn law to be a lawyer, let's say.
1: Yeah. It's basically learn how to work with legal texts. Yeah. Okay. And this change of focus would get John into contact with one of his greatest passions, which is mathematics. And of course, rather simple mathematics, but still, he was really into, um, juggling of numbers and mathematical concepts. But there was also something else in this new town. And that was that there was a military regiment stationed in Stettin. And thus there was like constant military presence everywhere. And he would like, he would like see military disciplinary measures out on the streets. Do you, do you know what running the gauntlet is? Okay, so
0: I say that, like, phrase a lot, but I don't know that I've ever actually looked up where it comes from.
1: Educate yeah, it's me, a, Papa Docs, it's a, tell me. It's like a military term. And the Wikipedia definition goes like this. To run the gauntlet means to take part in a form of corporal punishment, in which the party judged guilty is forced to run between two rows of soldiers who strike out and attack them with sticks or other weapons. And this would be, in oh. German, this is called Spießrutenlauf, and john would have seen this regularly out on the streets and this would be done until someone was dead like people got like they had to go back and forth between the soldiers until they were killed and this was done to soldiers as punishment
0: oh so what you said like running the gauntlet i was thinking it was like some kind of training exercise or something like that they so like no
1: it's corporal punishment punishment a form of execution wow
0: okay so just beaten to death with sticks
1: or or the weapons of the soldiers yes okay well that's kind of dark so yeah he's like as a as as an adolescent he would see executions of soldiers out on the streets and for me it's really hard to imagine this like this visceral world a person like john lived in. Mm -hmm. like I, i i can't really speak for you but you know I do not think that we can know what it's like to be constantly confronted by this absolutely cruel and brutal world your entire life. Yeah. But you don't have to worry because this is not some kind of villain backstory uh, (laughs) that I'm trying to paint here because John will turn out just fine. But I think the fact that he did in spite of all those things that he experienced constantly in his life is kind of amazing.
0: You know, I will say, though... Uh, as uplifting as that is, Johann Christian Ludwig Helvik is the fucking coolest villain name, and it also could be pretty much any bad guy in a
1: '90s movie. So, <laughs> I, I love, I love how you looked up his name and now you can read it, and you, you did good pronunciation, I'm very close. You.
0: Uh, you know, I did take one year of German that I
1: didn't really pay attention to in high school. Nice, yeah. <laughs> So, after finishing school in in Stettin, he moves on and gets a degree in law, uh, especially focusing on mathematics. But he also gets into biology, apparently doing like a little detour into entomology, which is like this science of insects. For some reason, he got into that for a while, I don't know. Um, And during this time, John really struggled with money, but he got into the good graces, which was kind of like his pet peeve. He was good at getting in good graces with important people which we, you, you will later see he got into the good classes with the principal of the university and was basically just exempted from tuition which was nice he never had enough cash to go out though so he just spent all of his time still reading history books and studying math um like the nerd that he was
0: <laughs> i mean that's all any academic can uh ask for is to just get adopted by someone with money so that you can keep reading books <laughs> yeah yeah uh you know hey um if any of you wants to adopt me uh let (laughs) me know um
1: (laughs) people with money please uh call this number to adopt this lonely long-haired man (laughs) that really requires uh time to read books especially money to read books Please send your applications to CodexRexpodcast at gmail.com. Do you know these big bottles that hamsters get with a little metal ball (laughs) in? They can put it onto your window and you can get like little snacks and then they can get I get a window?
0: Yeah. I can see the sun. Yeah, sometimes. (laughs) Um uh, you know that is
1: a luxury. So um, that sounds great. So John gets his degree, and he's like completely exhausted from it. And I, I think we can relate. <laughs> uh, like academia took something out of him and spit it out, and he was just a husk of his former self. And he writes in his autobiography that he just got a simple government job at that time because he just that what he that's what he qualified for, and he just wanted to regenerate for a while. And He didn't really want to be a government clerk forever. He wanted to become a teacher. And when he was 23, because he was 23 at the time, he became the private teacher in the household of a general, of a military general, teaching two boys in far more topics than he was taught as, as a kid. Like, he really gets into designing his own teaching materials, which actually does not go unnoticed by the father of the kids, because I think... As a kid, he experienced such terrible teaching, such like just getting punished, having to memorize everything, that he kind of wanted to do better. And he put a lot of work into coming up with these tabular teaching formats that were easier to comprehend for children. And one thing that would happen as a private teacher, that he would basically have dinner with the family. And since the father of the family was a general, there would always be all kinds of military officers um at the at the dinner table and these guys they would be talking about nothing else but soldiering and cannons and like military conversations every evening but what kind of surprised john was that they also discussed math mathematical problems a lot like like geometry um which hmm. kind of makes sense because war is also a lot about like shortest path and circumference of things Um, sure even like you want to shoot
0: a cannon do you know how to calculate where it will hit you know um that
1: kind of math matters and that's mathematics that you have to discuss um so kind of like he he planned to impress them a bit so he brushed up on his mathematics and he actually put up like little shows for them where he showed them how to calculate certain things and he actually managed to to get them impressed so they actually started to purposefully coming to him to come to him on purpose to consult him for mathematical problems that they faced in in war or during their 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 officers' um, exercises.
0: I want to make a bunch of math jokes here, but even with my Ph.D., I'm not confident enough to make fun math jokes. So this is the point where you would go, I would make a joke, and then you would go, "Good math joke, Tyler," and then we would laugh. <laughs> what a good math joke oh numbers
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) thank you (laughs) well during this time john's father (laughs) retired (laughs) i'm I'm just just gonna just keep going just 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 ignore it (laughs) ignore me (laughs) so john's dad retired and remember john's dad wanted john to be a government clerk and John's dad was asked, Hey, do you have like a replacement for you? Like, can someone else just do your job? And his dad obviously wanted John to come back home and become like a mayor or any kind of government clerk. But John just refused. He was just, no, I've got a good job. I've, I'm, I'm making connections here. I'm not going to come back home and do like city government clerk to work for the rest of my life. He had his own plans and he continued being a private teacher and a consultant. Um, And there was one reason especially why he was so confident, because the general, his employer, he was so impressed with him that he introduced him to someone. He introduced him to someone called Prince Wilhelm. Prince Wilhelm was an actual prince, and he was a man of culture, and he liked to surround himself with the well worst people.
0: He he liked to surround himself with the worst people? Like, I wanted to say well-versed people. Oh, well-versed people. Oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, my pronunciation. I mean, look. No, it's okay. I mean, also, like, you know, we're doing this over the internet because you're in Germany and I'm not. Yeah. And so sometimes things get a little garbled. But I was like, oh, man, he surrounded himself with the worst people. So why did he want old Johnny Boy then? He seems like an upstanding. <laughs> I understand now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Maybe he'll yeah. also surround himself with the with the worst of people, but we don't know about that. Um, we don't the thing is the prince was so much into John and his math magic and his teachings that he actually wanted to be a student himself and so all of a sudden John was the teacher of a of a high ranking nobleman and wow he literally teaches a prince and the kids of a general and the prince actually wanted John to be his personal counselor so wow John is just like wow shit I made it Uh, and he he makes he makes plans nah nah. I
0: think you know I don't think you do that I think you go back to your hometown and you be the guy that processes tax forms I think that's you know listen to your dad he knows what's up you know they got good benefits there and you know um, Sheila von Karstein or whatever's been asking about you and you know just it's time to go back home fuck fuck the monarchy you know just
1: (laughs) dude and, and I think like Something will happen now that I think made him exactly have these thoughts. Like, why didn't oh, I just really? go home? I just fucked up my entire life because of this. Because what happens is okay. he quits his job. Okay. He's like, okay, nice. I'm going to be the counselor of the prince. Fuck yeah. He quits his job with the general. Mm-hmm. He, he he's just like okay I gotta have like I need like a week to check in with my university to do some formal arrangements and then I'm gonna be back and gonna be teaching the prince man I'm gonna be living the prince life he goes to university he comes back like a few days later to meet his new boss Prince Wilhelm but Wilhelm is gone oh and he's like what, what's going on and what happened is Wilhelm fucked up because these noble people they had to go, like, to to dinners and stuff with other noble people. Mm-hmm. And he was the prince, and he wasn't even the son of the king. He was the prince of some other, like, duchy or principality or something. And during a dinner with the king of Prussia, Wilhelm commented on a marital argument the king was having and fell into disfavor. Oh, no. And then he was sent to the front line of a war. Oh, where he died of an infection really quickly. And he was... When when John came back, Wilhelm was already dead. Okay,
0: okay. So, wait. (laughs) Okay. So, (laughs) John goes from old Johnny boy, Johann von Johnstein. He... (laughs) <laughs> just to, just to clarify, he rises through the ranks pretty fucking quickly, right? He is the tutor of a general and then he meets all these fancy people and then he's going to be the personal counselor to the prince and then the prince makes a bad sex joke at a party, gets sent to the front line and dies in the time that John is going to go back and tell his university that he's going to go work for the prince. Okay.
1: In the time that John basically cut off all connections to everybody, <laughs> yes. well, should have listened to your dad, Johnny boy. You know he told you he should have. He should have listened to his dad. Stable
0: man. job, man. You go pounding around with the aristocracy. They're gonna die of an infection on the front line. See, it's like I told you. Yep.
1: Yeah. Well, that sucks. What so, now? Yeah, he, was <laughs> <laughs> he was out of a job. He was twenty-seven years old. Okay, this is maybe also a good time to talk about war and how it defined the world at the time. So, because like, it, it seems like that this is like a, a random thing that didn't happen to many people, but this happened all the time. Because war was an absolutely permanently present thing. Like it was absolutely normal for great nations at the time to engage in these great wars where most of the country's resources, may they be material or human, were spent on defeating an enemy. Like every seven years or like every 10 years, there would be a war like that. So you would basically in your lifetime constantly experience war like this and all, kind, like, all people around you would die of war. You would always know someone that died in the war. And even though most of these German states kind of existed in this alliance called the Holy Roman Empire, this political unit was completely unable to maintain stability. Like these states, even though they were in a union, would go to war with each other. So going back to John, you kind of have to understand that events like this, when his patron Prince William died, they were not an exception, but absolutely common I don't say he could have foreseen it, but I, I think that is the reason why maybe he didn't give up immediately, because he was, not he, not because he was used to it, but because this was something that just happened to people. <laughs> the world just did not know what lasting peace was. It just didn't exist. The concept was completely strange to everybody. It, there, was, there was no way that there's something like that could ever be. If the world knows lasting peace today, that is like a completely different question entirely. But I just want to understand that John's entire life was embedded in war. Everything, even though he wasn't a soldier, everything around him was war. The boys that he was teaching for the general, they would go to military academy and in a few years they would become officers themselves. All the people he talked to every day, all these officers, they were all talking about nothing else but going to war constantly, like every day in their life, they were preparing to kill other people for their nation. And all the ultimately mathematical questions that he was ever asked were exclusively concerned with winning war. So that was his entire life. And I think you have to understand this he was 27 years old he was younger than we are now I think at his age he must have already been quite the expert in military theory And this is where the story continues because this is the important part he was an ex- at this age he was already an expert at teaching people about the, the theoretics of, mil- of of war in the military Some of the sources that are used speculate that Halvik already had plans at this point because he was, he, of course, he further ignored his dad, <laughs> and he, he just, he didn't settle down, mm-hmm. become a government clerk. He tried to get employment in the Principality of Brunswick by corresponding with the local region called Karl I. My sources speculate that he tried for Brunswick because the Principality was known for being open towards the Enlightenment movement. The Enlightenment movement is like another term we have to elaborate on, but, um, since this episode already is bringing with huge amounts of random historical terminology, I'm just going to explain it to Who cares, right? Go for it. You know what? It's a docs episode. It's what I expect. So the Enlightenment um, was like a cultural movement of the era, and it was kind of the process of moving towards scientific progress. So in the simplest of terms, the goal of the Enlightenment was to enlighten people about the scientific nature of the world. And most of the scientific culture that we have today kind of goes back to the enlightenment. So it's, it's, it's actually something that we kind of build upon uh, today, even though maybe the scientific ideas that they had back then are completely strange to us today. And so the principality of Brunswick um, under Karl I, they were kind of open towards the enlightenment and John Helwig wanted to be part of that. He wanted to be part of this scientific progress. And he liked the idea of challenging traditions and improving society by teaching people about the nature of the world. And due to its acceptance of the principles of this Enlightenment, Brunswick transformed during this time. Like schools were opened up, museums were built, theaters were funded all of a sudden, and Brunswick turned into this cultural hub. And because John Helwig liked it so much there, he would remain there for the rest of his life. Okay he would actually have his main residence in Brunswick. And he got hired as a teacher for, it's like a synonym for, like he he was a teacher for pages, but, but not the pages mm-hmm. in the book, but like these young noble right. servants. The definition of a page is like, it's like a young, it's like a high, like if you are born into a highborn family and you're like between seven and 14, um, you will go into this, like in the medieval times, you would kind of prepare to be a knight But during this time already, you would basically prepare for the responsibilities in court. And you would basically serve as... You would be a servant, but you would basically assist older noble people. Um, Did you Um, know that
0: in the United States Senate, uh, pages still exist? Uh, There is a program to become a page. And uh, I, I knew somebody who... Um, once got selected for it. Um, bit of a long story there uh, but the long short of it is that they take like teenagers and you go do like a set amount of time working in the senate doing much of the work that you were kind of talking about right you're, you're, you're kind of like an intern sort of like in, in today's terms and uh, but you know you see them if you ever like watch closely like if you ever watch a feed of the senate floor you can see them sort of sitting off to the side if you see like a bunch of teenagers sitting off to the side the senate pages are like teenagers who essentially Like, run and grab things that are needed for the day to day business of the Senate and sort of help out. And in return, they get to have like a cool experience where they get to like sit on the floor, they get to meet all these people. And like, uh, not to go on a tangent of my own, but you can kind of get like, I always. Kind of thought of like a measure of how senators are. if you watch how they interact with the pages, you get kind of an idea of like what kind of person they are. and so like example, I've always oh, yeah. really liked like Cory Booker like I, i've I've always heard Cory Booker is like a really nice guy. I know people who have met him, that kind of thing, and he uh he is apparently super nice to the pages and he like sneaks them candy and like talks to them and all this stuff. and like I always thought that was really cool, but yes pages still exist in the senate and i'm sure that they exist in other places but that's i'm a political scientist that's what i think of immediately
1: yeah and the basic idea probably also with the pages in congress but also with the pages during this time was not to to actually teach them the profession but also like to teach them a lot about how to behave in the setting and uh, how to behave in court and how to approach people of that rank and um, how to be a nobleman and by just watching other noblemen. Because he was hired as a teacher, John was hired as a teacher for pages. He basically taught these young men, these pages, taught them math, but he would um, also like be like a constant uh, counselor for them. And these boys, because they were born of, the, like, these were high-born kids, they would turn into noblemen in a few years. He was basically building up a connection to future influential people by teaching them. He was like setting himself up for a huge boost in vitamin B. Is is, is like is vitamin B a thing you say no. in English?
0: Well, I mean, it's like okay. something you'd take in a pill form so that, yeah, you like, know, you know, you...
1: <laughs> okay, I, I understand. Wait, that's not like an idiom in German. In, in German, we say vitamin B if it's like... If you get an advantage by being on good terms with someone... Okay. You can say like, uh he got that job because of his vitamin B. Oh, so that's like something you say. So he so, was like building.
0: So does the B like stand for anything, or is it just like a like a stand-in? Yeah, for for
1: I think it stands for Beziehung, which means like relationship. Okay. Like vitamin relationship. Okay, that's interesting. Which now explains why it doesn't exist in English because it's a different. Yeah. Well, yeah. th- okay.
0: also you know English does like we tend to pick up like we i say we uh english speakers tend to pick up little phrases from other languages and then incorporate them into our speech and then say that that's english so shut the fuck up it's been here since forever it's ours now and you don't get it so it could have been english too yeah who knows but uh so basically old johnny boy here is setting himself up for round two right he's teaching a bunch of kids again he's teaching noble kids again so to speak and making
1: connections again he's going to be teaching at that page school for the next twenty years and like these are like seven to fourteen year old boys and a seven year old boy within ten to twelve years turns into a twenty year old boy and then that all, all of a sudden that is a person that has influence in court and can give him get get him money and um the the resources to change things. Um so actually the next twenty years kind of turn into the best part of his life because he has secured employment he actually gets his phd he he makes enough money to get his little brother to move in to the same town as him and he kind of finances his uh, medical school he gets married he has several children and all of these influential young people know and respect him they really like him because apparently he's a really good teacher so carl the first that guy that hired Mm -hmm. him the regent he at some point he dies and he was, he was a supporter of the Enlightenment, but he was still reluctant in some parts because he was an old dude. That Carl the First died, John can use this influence that he built with the new young elite to further reform the education system. And he becomes, actually, in Brunswick, John becomes a man of decent influence. Like, he's someone that you know, um, within the region. I'm sorry, Um,
0: I'm just sitting here being like, how is he going to relate this to video games? And all I can think of is like, just have this bit in my head where like, Dr. Von Johnstein walks into his students one day and he goes, I've created something. It's called... A video game, and he's just got a bunch of pieces of paper. (laughs) And he's like, When you push, when you put your finger on this drawing of a button, I'm gonna, and he, I'm this guy's gonna move. And he's just got him on like a, like a little guy on a stick. And then he just goes in front of a background. Oh no, here comes a scary guy. He's a mean guy. Better get him. Better press that button. And then he just kind of shuffles the papers around. And they're like, This guy, Mm -hmm. he is the. Best teacher. He is so <laughs> fucking good at his job. The kids just love John, him. John has like a
1: <laughs> John, John has like a time time <laughs> for between <him. laughs> I just they on the <laughs> And he experiences like twenty-five seconds of Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> and John just teaches it to the students on pin. I just keep hearing it in my dreams. I just hear it over and oh i I can't i can't do it
0: it's it's (laughs) yeah please don't nintendo please don't please we don't make any money from this (laughs) (laughs) because we don't know no we're poor please but anyway no yeah so john's fever dream about video games the yeah
1: you will have the twist the the twist will happen in the next few moments okay So we could speak of Helwig's further life, but we will not, because this is where the deciding part of his life happens that we are interested in. His time as a teacher in Brunswick will produce the reason for why Helwig is featured in this podcast. John Helwig, he liked alternative ways of teaching. Alternative means he did not want kids to spend their entire days memorizing random facts or terms. John Helwig designed an educational game. And what game, you ask? Super Mario Brothers made of paper. <laughs> Tyler just sent me a picture of <laughs> Super Mario Brothers made of paper. Yeah, that's what, that's what he made. No, uh, we're going to actually listen to a quote okay. of John from his rule Okay. I'm going to give him a funny voice. <laughs> in the invention of this game, of which I first made an attempt in the year 1780, I had the intention to visualize some rules of the art of war. And thereby be useful to the student of this art. A secondary intention was to provide pleasant <coughs> entertainment through a game to those who do not need such instruction, a game in which nothing depends on chance but everything on the player's performance. Experience has taught me that I have not missed my intention. This encouraged me to give the game greater perfection. To what extent the attempt corresponds to the inventor's intention must be left to others for judgment, as I, cannot be entirely impartial even if it were found that this stands at a lower level of perfection than i flatter myself experience has taught me that it illustrates many rules of the art of war and has been very helpful to beginners in this science in gaining insight into important truth of that doctrine i did not make this pleasant experience alone a scholar famous in that field the ducal Brunswick colonel Morvillon, convinced himself of it by examining some of his listeners This prompted him, who was initially skeptical of the game as a means to contribute to the education of a young warrior, (laughs) to become acquainted with it. He became an eager defender of it. Only death prevented him from translating it into the French language to make known abroad an invention that seemed to him to be anything but unimportant. Wow. End of quote. Mm -hmm. So he made the first
0: first war game. Yes.
1: Awesome. And yeah, n- not just any war game, it is literally called Kriegsspiel, which means, simply, which means war game. And one might argue that it is actually the first game that actually tries to simulate war. Well, this is
0: what I was going to ask you, because I assume that there have been, like, war games throughout history of some kind, right?
1: Dude... And this is what everybody says. Like, and this is what I thought. Like, I I have seen mm-hmm. movies, right, where there's like there's like medieval kings and they're standing using the stick. With these they have figures. the sticks
0: that they move yeah. the figures with.
1: There's literally no evidence that that. Are you existed. gonna fucking tear down my worldview?
0: I want them to move
1: the forces with stick stocks. I was convinced, but there's we have no evidence archaeological or others whatsoever that this happened bef- like this around Helwig's time there's evidence for it for that other people did it but before that long time before that we, we do not know th- because this is not how people thought about war this is how we think about war we have this top-down cardiographic view on war but other like like Napoleon for example even though Napoleon was a few years later than this uh or Caesar, like there's a good example of what Caesar did when Caesar did a battle. He would go onto a hill and look upon the battlefield and then discuss with his generals um if or, or if they were discussing theoretical battles, they would basically do it in their mind or write down things, but they would not draw a map <laughs> and then like play out scenarios to come up with tactics that did not happen never we we, or at least we do not know of it helwick is the person that came up with it and this really fascinates me that this happened so late because it seems like such an essential part of like good Mm -hmm. warfare right no it totally makes
0: sense um uh i'm just kind of flabbergasted like i just you always would think that this existed but i don't know man that's crazy yeah. well so okay and wait that it did not exist. so it's i suppose it's possible and you would know this more than i would that these things existed in some way or another but they were never like written down into a rule book that we could point back to is that what you're like or did just no one ever do this
1: i would say that it, it's very unlikely that it existed because ah. what is the reason why something like that would exist it's be- because the enlightenment movement made such thought possible Because the only reason to make such a game is to make teaching accessible. And the Mm. thought of making teaching accessible was for a very long time a very strange idea. And now, during the time of Enlightenment, where people like Helvig that certainly existed before him but never got into any influential positions because there was no movement that would ever support them, now that people like Helwig would get into this position, they could basically, even if someone before him would have come up with this idea, which there probably was, there probably was even generals that used something in their mind that was similar to this, and we just don't have any evidence of it. But that it was used, like John used this as a teaching tool that we actually have the rule book of, that was used on a broad scale for many people that would actually influence military strategies for centuries to come. And this is something that did not exist. And this is actually my proposition at the title for this episode. It's The Founding Mm -hmm. Fathers of Wargaming. Because... I'm down. Helwig is not the only one given that title. He's called the the guy that invented the first war game, but then there's always people like, oh, but there's a better war game that came later on. We'll talk about that too. But first, we'll talk about John's game. Because... um, we we can talk about what the other fathers of wargaming achieved but i think his take on it is really interesting because we actually have the rulebook i actually read it and it's it's really neat i have a digitalized version of the book and i i think i just want to talk about it a bit because i know that um some of our listeners and you are tabletop wargamers so mm-hmm. i think you might have some interest in this just for well, I'm very standpoint. interested so the rule book spans 200 pages and it's written like a legal text consisting 323 um, paragraphs separated into 22 chapters like discussing. are you telling me
0: that our dear johnny boy is a rules
1: lawyer <laughs> yeah he absolutely is he he made oh, okay. a legal text about rules yeah. yeah okay that's pretty rad <laughs> so i talk a bit about the introductory comments that he makes, and then about the first two chapters, because they kind of describe how the game looked like, and then I will give you a broad description of the other chapters. Um, to, but to just give you a too-long-didn't-read about this, um, Helwig basically just modded Chess very extensively. Like, he took Chess and, and just went nuts on it. Um, and, and you're gonna see how in a few moments. I suppose um, that
0: is a really smart idea because of how, like, how do I put this? Chess has been around for forever, and you would be more likely to find someone with a chess board than you would with the other random pieces that you might need to make a war game. Right? Ex- it's like taking existing materials.
1: I had the same thought because also chess was highly popular at the time. So yeah. you, he, had, he would have an easy time explaining it to people because we're like, okay, first off, this is like a chessboard. Uh, mm-hmm. And then everything else is just added onto it. Um, so a lot of these paragraphs in the book are actually not rules, but he kind of just debates like important things in war and especially important things in war games, which I find very interesting. Um, and And these comments that he makes i find like they they have they kind of show you how he's very good at explaining theoretical concepts like it's it i think actually reading this rule book is actually good material to learn about military theory not that i know anything about it but i've afterwards after i read it i was like oh i, I understand a few things a bit better than i think i did before um but also that it, like he, he kind of mixes rules and his personal philosophical ideas kind of makes it different, difficult to actually extract the rules of the game. So you're saying he needed an editor? Yeah, he absolutely needed an editor.
0: Um, in, some, uh, in some war games these days, they'll put all of the fun lore and thoughts of that up front and then they'll get into the rules so that you don't have to dig through the lore to find smart. the rules. But, but you know, John can't be perfect John, in John
1: should have put some of the lore in front of the book. Bur- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um I, but I didn't think it was a bad thing because I was like, yeah, I'm not going to read 300 pages of something just to give Tyler a good explanation, but then I kind of got <laughs> into it and uh started enjoying reading it. Sadly it's in German, so I I can give it to you but you you won't be able to read it. Um wow. so it's at
0: C- C- Kriegspiel is, is that yeah, it's yeah. okay so there's several
1: okay. games that came up come up in the next hundred years that are all called Greek spiel because okay. they all basically iterate on Helwig's idea because his game in certain elite circles got very famous. Okay um, hmm. but in his rule book he basically starts with the simplest ideas like how a good war game like no matter like if you want to make a game about war it must recognize that there's different troops that have like different abilities. And that's like the basic that it is. If, if a war game doesn't do that, then it's not a good war game. And he says how there must be good rules to handle different terrain and also obstacles, because this is what's important and what also distinguishes it from games like chess, whereas ideas like that don't play any role at all. And he also thinks it's important that there's war machines that are very diverse and... Um, but in the end, it's important in a game to reduce com- complex things to simpler things, which kind of blows my mind because it's such a, it's it's such an idea that is so far ahead of its time, like in in game design theory, that I'm 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 a bit impressed. But I read it, and he was like like clearly, if you make a game, you gotta have like a, a a very reduced, clear idea of what you're doing, so people can understand it, and um, that was really cool that is neat uh, and uh, somehow I think that his rulebook is kind of prophetic about how how rule books are going to develop in the next hundred years
0: so um, so it was adversarial was there like a was there any sort of random chance associated with it or was it just like you know this piece represents this troop and it does this thing like what like give me the give me the crunchy basics of
1: we're, we're gonna, we're gonna get into the crunchy basics. I'm just gonna start with, start. The, but it's a good question because he says in his game, he, he didn't add any kind of idea of chance, which was also due to the fact that probability theory and the entire science of stochastics wasn't developed as far that would make it like predict, like possible to build like a good predictable system around it so he probably just didn't have the skills to do it
0: it's really interesting that you say that, because even today Andre and I were playing a game of Warhammer, right? And um, I was uh, to give you just a small idea, I was charging in uh, with some big scary chaos space marines into uh, one of her uh, Eldar units. Um, think of like very quick uh, space elves is the best way I can put that. And uh, she said, I want, I don't know, should I use this ability? Should I spend a couple of my little tokens here to use this ability to fight you first? And I said, well, let's look at the probability of how much damage you're going to do to me if take statistics you know how many attacks are you going to get okay what do you need to roll okay statistically you're only going to hit me six times and then you're only going to wound me on average two times and then i'm probably only going to take one wound if we take the averages of all of that is it worth two command points to do it to me and she's like well when you put it that way no and i was like well see like that's where statistics and math and all this stuff comes in because now you can sort of game out the system but if you don't have even a basic understanding of statistics uh, to be able to put that into a rule set, I can see how that wouldn't appear.
1: How interesting. Um, And building a balanced statistical system for a game is more difficult than many people might think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, And what I also found prophetic about is that he kind of, he like he, he generalized resources. Like he said, okay, armies require food and he wanted to include this in his game, like supply lines that had to be maintained. Uh, and he was like, but we don't have to go into what these resources that they're equal. Like if you have food, if it's warm clothes, it's just like a general resource called needs. And mm. if it's cut off, the army dies. And that's enough for him. And I think this is like, this goes into a lot of what war games would later do. Like if, even if you look at video games, for x games that always use like simplified versions of resources to represent a larger idea. Right. Now let's 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 do what you asked for the, like the most basic idea of what the game um, actually wants of you. So first like in any rule book the first thing you have written down is how do you win? Okay. You win in this war game however it may look one player wins against another if they conquer their land. Just how in war it works. If there's a, like in his game there was a clear win condition which you have to remember this is important. He had a very clear win condition. And a land is conquered once It can be easily held, which he says means you conquer the Gland's fortress. If you conquer the fortress, there was like an entire section just about conquering fortresses. Um, The war was won, and one side um, uh, basically conquered the land. And if all the fortresses were conquered, um, that was the end of the game. Okay, and were these like squares on a chessboard that were considered to be those things? things? I I will give you how this... Okay, but now we have the win condition, conquer the fortress of the land. Where? How did this look? Okay, basically imagine a chessboard. Um, Now he describes the playing board. is um, It's it's kind of the size is kind of arbitrary, but he liked to go for four feet times two point six feet. And onto this paper, you were supposed to draw 49 equidistant lines across the widths and 33 across the lengths. You you were supposed to draw a chessboard. And it was at this point that I realized, oh, shit, John didn't have graph paper. Poor (laughs) fucker. Yeah, I guess not. (laughs) No, he always had to draw his own game boards. And just (sighs) imagine he has to draw like 1,600 squares. Um, onto a piece it. of paper. Good thing <laughs> that he had pages working for him that could do that work for him. Get in here, pages! Um, I have a very important task for you. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's Teacher John again, and he wants us to spend our entire day drawing graph paper. Shut
0: up, Carl. He's a, he's a good teacher, okay? Okay? He showed me that Italian guy. He showed me that Italian guy jumping, okay? He's a good teacher. I'll draw 1,600 <laughs> squares, okay? I don't know what the fuck a Goomba is, but I'm really excited <laughs> about it.
1: <laughs> Yahoo! <laughs> 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 <Why>? <laughs> okay, so, basically the first thing you do in the game is you spend half a day drawing graph paper. <laughs> and and then you start coloring the squares okay so different colors mean different things white and black squares are just like on the chessboard just normal terrain where troops can move through and shoot through and stuff like that and there's the red squares which is like obstacles that you can't move your troops through uh, but you um and you can and you can't even shoot through them like mountains okay and then there's like green squares which are obstacles like swamps that you can't walk through, but you can shoot through them. Um, and then there's blue squares, which are water, which is too deep to cross. And you can also represent buildings by drawing like half of a square red. And buildings can be occupied and they give you cover against fire and artillery and stuff like that. Um, Oh and man! You know, has, I was like, just
0: thinking about those like dry erase mats that I have for D anD D, and like how much of a fucking game changer it would have been for him to not like yeah. to just be like, "Let's roll out the mat," and this one's green. But like, oh man, drawing them all by just hand. imagine
1: you you like dressed as you are now. You just open the door, walk into the room, <laughs> and he's just sitting there drawing, <laughs> being done with drawing like a quarter of the graph paper. And you just lay the thing down. You draw one line on it. Then take some eraser, erase it again, and then look at him, give him a <laughs> wink, and just leave. Drop the microphone. <laughs> he, he, says just he says something.
0: He says something incomprehensible to me in German, but I know. I can feel the emotion. Uh, yes. He looks at it and he says, "What is Chessex? What is Chessex? Is that the name of this
1: magical man?" Okay, so, so you have this chessboard, you color it, you can make all kinds of things that you also have in real life, and then you basically, you just use it like a chessboard, but certain things basically prevent your figures from getting caught by other figures. Um And this is basically the entire idea of the game. There's more details about how mm. certain things work, and when some, like, there was different kinds Um Um, of provinces on the map. Like you would split the entire plan into 22 provinces and each player would get 11 each and each player would get fortresses. And there's like an entire chapter about how to conquer these fortresses. And he had some pretty cool ideas. So this sounds to me, if I, I, I guess I didn't put
0: this together earlier. So it's not that he like took an existing chessboard and says, you play it on the chessboard. It's more like he's recreating a grid that's larger than a chessboard to fit all of this stuff in and hand drawing it, but using the idea of okay, so I'm seeing this picture that you sent me. That's way bigger than a chessboard. Um, yeah, but does so he, but he still uses the pieces from the chessboard to represent oh. troops on the grid.
1: I right? have a picture of that too. No, he made his own pieces. Oh, okay, great. Look at that. <clears throat> Look at that shit. Oh man, and that's so He made really so cool. fancy pieces.
0: Like, wow! There was like
1: there was like three kinds of different troops, like infantry and cavalry and um, artillery, and he would fashion them out of lead and wood, and okay. they basically they 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 could move like a queen in mm-hmm. chess, all of them, uh, and they would all like one one figure would represent like a cohort a cohort like several of them, right right, um, and but they, they, they could just move around on the chessboard. To
0: describe to all of you what this looks like and how I'm conceptualizing this, if you've ever, if you live in the United States or you've ever seen the game Sorry... Okay, there are these little pieces that go with it. Or I guess I'm sure there's something else, but it's just immediately what comes to mind where they're very thick at the base and then they have, they they slowly become thinner and they have like a little pointed top and on top of that little pointed top is sort of what I would call an approximation of a horse, like just the body and head of a horse, and then on top of that is just like the upper chest of a man with like a fancy hat on and a and a fancy mustache yeah. it's and like that would the be like a bust of a piece. horse
1: yeah and on top of the bust of a horse is the bust of a man
0: <laughs> that that's a better way to describe that but yes yeah all on top of like yeah. this little piece that like i said has like a wide base and a, and a and a thin top
1: and then you would have the the huge board on which you would put these mm-hmm. um that are basically sent you, is basically a chessboard that is colored it's much larger than a chessboard like it's like four or five chessboards um and what you would also draw on them which you can see here is like communication lines so every army would have a communication line to the fortress and you could basically disrupt them to starve them out and then you could mm-hmm. defeat but you you could defeat troops by disrupting the communication which would basically destroy the supply line and stuff like that and we already talked about the troops that they were made of wood and lead and um What he also did, what I found really cool, is that he did not only make this like figurines and like he paid um craftsmen money to build them, but he also painted them using oil colors oh. to make really pretty. And I'm like, okay, this dude just invented Warhammer. <laughs> he, he he invented it. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Like if if he would have started selling these figures for fifteen dollars a piece, we'd be calling War Helwig today, <laughs> not Warhammer. Kriegspiel <laughs> forty thousand. <000. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> um, um, and what you have and then the game basically proceeded in turns, in turns like chess would um, okay. th- though you could not i think if i understood correctly you cannot only move one figure by turn but you can do a lot of moves per turn okay uh, and there was like there was like a whole set of classes of different moves like a, a figure cannot only like beat another figure like Put it, or like remove it from the board. But it can also like put put buildings on fire or destroy walls or build a bridge or destroy a bridge or stuff like that. Um, so there's like different actions that you can do. So it actually, people like I've I've heard people in in texts talk down on it because it's so simplified that i read the rules and i was like this isn't simple this is just you're just complaining that there isn't any dice to roll but this is fucking complicated it seems it especially like
0: imagine i mean it's like kind of hard but like imagine if you had never seen a war game before and then someone was like here is this entire game that simulates war and like having that experience of being able to do all of those things like this sounds like a lot to me like i've played very simple games before and this does not sound simple to me i'm in agreement.
1: one thing that i imagine is when he was working for the general as a house teacher and he was having this dinner conversations with these guys. this is complete speculation but i'm very sure that this general had a chessboard and they had these discussions about war and that at some point where, he, where they were discussing troop movements, he just took a chessboard on the table and moved the figurines around and used chess figures to basically let them explain to him and him explain to them like mathematical or war movement problems. And I think this is how I speculate. He probably came up with this entire idea of thinking about war in this chess like fashion. Gotcha. So yeah, I already told you that there's like different troops that they all move like queens and then like like in, and then there was like rules how fast they can move. Like infantry can move 8 squares and mm-hmm. heavy cavalry can move 12 squares and light cavalry can move 16 squares. And there was like there's like a rule where like there was the, the figures would have a front so you know where they would be facing. So mm-hmm. you could only beat a figure um, from the flank as far as I understand. Um, which is, um, also a vastly different concept and makes like the chess thing, um, very different. And yeah. infantry can shoot and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Still, it's very chessy. He did not like use randomness mm-hmm. at all. And you basically win the game by taking your troops and stepping onto other troops. This was the whole idea. Nothing else. Nothing so- fancy follow
0: question to that then uh do both players start with the same units in the same quantity or is it imbalanced in any way like how did they how do you determine how did he determine who had what in their armies do you know
1: um he he actually never goes maybe i didn't see it he never goes into balancing and how to make things balance he spends a lot of paragraphs on how important it is To clearly define rules, because people apparently started fighting in his Uh, early versions of the game a lot what was right and what wasn't. Um, But he doesn't really go into how he would balance. Um, I would guess, because he also spreads out the provinces equally to both sides, that he would probably give the equal amount of units to both people. But I don't know.
0: Yeah, I was just curious. I mean, you know, real life war is not exactly fair, right? But when you're playing a yeah. war game where you're sort of trying to match wits against somebody, um, generally balance is looked for. Uh, so I
1: was just curious. Yeah. There was. Um, apparently, um, it's a pretty swift game where troops get um, set off the board relatively fast. Okay. Um, but it's still taught, like, I. Th- the best way to win according to Halwig was to be ke- to play very carefully and keep your front clear and take care of your flanks and if if you basically played careful enough um you could already because this was mainly mainly designed but apparently also older officers enjoyed it but mainly designed to teach pages the basics of war and I think for this, it was more than sufficient. And right. according to his introduction and by how popular it became within the elite of Brunswick and probably also in Prussia, um, it became clear that officers enjoyed playing this game to kind of think of ideas of war, which I think kind of speaks for it. Um, yeah, it's a pretty intricate game. It's a huge rule book. Um, and I would actually like to play it once, but I think it's too much work to get through his Lord Jabal to actually extract the actual rules. I hope maybe someone, I bet some German guy already transcribed it in a way that's easier to read. I'm I
0: sure, I don't want to say sure, but I'm 99% sure that someone out there has created a Kriegspiel tabletop simulator thing that you could go do. And I'm going to Google it while I talk to you. So,
1: Yeah, it might be that you find something that we'll be discussing in a few minutes that is from a later time. Yeah. But, um, maybe. Because, um, yeah, the problem with Helwig's game, and we are going to leave Helwig, John, behind now, um, is that there was no readiness.
0: The International Kriegspiel Society, modules for Tabletop Simulator.
1: There you go. Nice. Sick sick I, it might be that kriegspiel is also a general term for any war game that is kind of these old, old schooly. oh shit but that makes sense because
0: it. did I, did i just see that kriegspiel translates to um to war, war game. game yeah okay so well that was very exciting for a second now i have no idea so we should just continue onward
1: <laughs> i tried <laughs> i will look at this later on okay cool um but yeah it the lack of randomness is a problem if you want to make an actual war game because chance is a huge factor in war that even both of us that have no clue how actual war is understand this. Right. Um, But his attempt to make a war game would actually inspire many others actually in in the national vicinity to improve on his ideas. And there's one guy... That would become especially famous and the best war games would actually be named after him, that came a few years after him. His name was George Reiswitz. We will call him George. Mm-hmm. And George Stadt, who was a Prussian baron, um, he had actually already designed a, a war game that was kind of inspired by Helwig's attempts, but that he used dice. He was never really able to complete his game. Um, and he designed this game during the Napoleonic Wars, which started in 1800. Okay. Um, but even though his like his George dad lost interest in his own war game, but George himself always enjoyed it, and he kind of kept designing and improving it. He his game was also called Kriegsspiel, which is why I thought that if you would Google something. You would probably find confusing things yeah that makes sense um but it was different in a few aspects that are very important to an improved Kriegsspiel. the first thing and maybe let's start out by showing you a picture of it because this will already explain it what the difference is this oh. is um Reiswitz war game it's not a grid that's the first thing i it's see it's not a grid it's it's a map right Mm-hmm. Um, and this was basically you could just take any map and play Reissbitz game on it
0: yeah and the pieces here to describe them to you all uh, look like little tiny rectangles of like maybe painted wood and there are some dice off to the side that it looks like you roll yeah. and is that a, yeah, is that a measurement know. thing That's there a measurement thing? yeah okay cool so I guess once you would establish what the scale is of the map you would want to play on, then you would kind of have an idea of movement and things like that.
1: How cool. Yeah. Yeah. And you must understand one thing. Mm -hmm. Helwig designed his game as a hybrid between a professional war game and a recreational war game. Where We're going to talk about this difference a lot because it's important and we will figure out why it's important. Okay. Reiswitz, George designed his war game as purely a professional war game he wanted to, this to pre only to prepare people for war um, like and 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 John had still kind of an emphasis on it this must be fun Reiswitz didn't he, he Reiswitz thought his game was fun but it wasn't his main idea he wanted to solve a few problems with war games So first off he used the real map second, there was not only two players, but there was an umpire. There was a third person. And this third person is important because this person oversaw the game. And the third, the moves that you would make your troops do, you wouldn't do them yourself, um, but they went through the umpire. Um, okay. Basically the troops of both teams, I think they moved simultaneously. And each team basically gave a little paper with commands to the umpire, and then the umpire would interpret the commands, which you have to understand, this is a professional war game. This is supposed to teach officers to give clear and understandable commands that can be executed by someone else. Right. And this idea I find really cool, and I kind of miss that we have never, and you know more about... Current war games than I do, but I have not encountered this. So in the only current war gaming.
0: So two two things that come to mind when I th- when I think of this. One, have you ever played a game called Diplomacy? Yeah. Okay, right in Diplomacy, you write down what you're going to do, and then everybody does those things simultaneously each turn. Right. Yeah. Though there's not like a neutral arbiter. Um, given that I've played a shit ton of Warhammer, um, the original version of Warhammer was basically a, a quasi-role-playing game called Rogue Trader, And, well, it was a role-playing game, really. But anyway, the idea is you had these little figurines, and you could fight each other with the figurines, but it required an outside umpire, like a DM, almost, like like you're saying, to sort of narrate the battle and how things would go. I Now... Some of you may have actually played this. Uh, I have only heard of this secondhand. I've not played it myself. But you needed a third person in order to do that. So that's like, that was even in like the 80s that you were still playing games where you sort of needed even this adversarial thing. You needed an outside person. So that existed. I'm sure that something out there surely exists now. but um,
1: Uh, A close relative of mine played a lot of Diplomacy um, via email, actually, which was pretty cool.
0: Oh, that's fun. Oh, how cool. Um, I see how you could do that. Uh, The last game I played of Diplomacy... (laughs) just a fun aside uh, I was playing it and uh, a buddy of mine brought me into the other room and was like because you know in diplomacy you all walk around you have a certain amount of time that you yeah, can maybe. talk to each other about what you're gonna do and he's like hey like listen like I know like we're technically like enemies right now but like let's team up Like, let's team up let's go take out this other guy and I was like yeah sure dude sure absolutely uh-huh and then I stabbed him in the back right like and he's possible. like oh yeah. come on right right so then the next round he comes out and he goes hey I know you stabbed me in the back I understand why you stabbed me in the back, but listen, we should team up. We should team up, and we should take this other guy out. And I'm like, yeah, sure, dude, no problem. Yeah, whatever you say, d- sure. D- d- and I stabbed, d- 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 stabbed I stabbed him in the back the next turn. 100%. I stabbed him in the back the next turn. So me, Flew me twice. <laughs> that was years ago, and I still feel bad about it. Like, I still can see the look on his face. So, hey, Mitch, if you're out there and you're listening to this, sorry, dude. <laughs>
1: this is my formal apology <laughs> okay diplomacy is great though uh, back to the game in in the race sure. game there's a fourth big difference and that is that um there was dice there was randomness and if, foods, mm-hmm. if if troops fought against each other like in in john's game just the troop that beat the other one the, the one that got beaten just got, got removed in Reiswitz's game in george's game um dice would determine the losses of each side um, and, and this basically, like, elevated um, the wargame so much that Reiswitch is actually also counted as one of the founding fathers of wargaming. Um, nice. And George, actually, he gathered this group of wargamers around him, like Prussian officers that liked to play with him. And one of the members of his gaming circle group, his nerdy group, was this um, actually the Prince of Prussia. And that guy's name? john warhammer uh yep john john jonnington warhammer son no mm-hmm. uh, i can actually give you a picture it's uh also wilhelm lots of them were called wilhelm that's an old picture of him oh my god look at that guy um i kind of want to hang out with that guy and he was a prince on prussia and he was the successor to the throne of the country so super influential prussia was a big time player in the German confederacy. Mm-hmm. Um, this picture that you're seeing is like 30 years after um, George knew him. So he is like an old dude already. But he, like when this guy was a young man, he knew George and he was playing like war games with him
0: to give you an all an idea of what this guy looks like um because this is an older picture of him uh, or rather he was older at that point in his life so um like starting to sort of bald in the middle of his head but has some sort of fruffy hair around the outside uh if i had to guess he's maybe in his early 50s just as a guess um kind of has those sort of like frown lines that you get and he's wearing this very sort of I don't know princely slash militaristic style coat with like with like buttons up the front and he's got this sort of sash and uh the like the little cuffs on the outfit also have sort of like those like these little metal in um inlaid things it's a really stylish coat
1: yeah I think it it looks like it's all made of satin so he was probably also very shiny (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's like a shiny pokemon he is yes Um, so yeah this guy Wilhelm he loved the game he was really into it and he um, he invites George to meet his dad the king <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow and
1: George is super stoked about this and he George spends like a ton of money to refine his game because he was like playing on funny little maps with funny little wooden tokens um, but he was going to meet the fucking king so he had like to up his game because his game was good, but if you have to impress the king you have to like you have to make something good. So he spends a lot of money on a huge gaming table and <laughs> that is mega fancy that had like he had these life goals ceramic <laughs> tiles that were like painted with different landscapes so you could switch out the, the land the, the map like on the fly. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh man. Uh,
0: so wait, so uh, I'm I, I'm gonna say, was this like one of the I guess I don't know, but like, this seems to me sort of like you're starting to see the evolution of, oh, okay, well, we're going to play a war game and it's on a grid. Well, now we're going to play a war game and it has these tiles. You can switch it out and they're painted and they're nice. And you could start to like, in my mind, you're starting to see things evolve until eventually you get to look at these little plastic trees, right? Like till three, you know, terrain becomes 3d. Uh, yeah. We're not there yet, but that's what I'm imagining
1: this is something that absolutely comes up more and more like there's a modular first a, a modularization and mm-hmm. then that there's like more plasticity th- to things um those are both
0: really good words to describe that evolution
1: yeah. yeah um he also ordered like super fancy figurines for the soldiers because he was just using those little wooden paper things but then he, he just wanted it to look really nice for the king the king and his family loved it they were really into it and at this point, I really also, I, I want to repeat that Prussia was known, like, maybe I didn't say it yet, but Prussia was known for its military prowess. It was like the military powerhouse in the German Confederation. Um, mm-hmm. m- and the military superiority was the number one goal of the Prussian state. And being a great military man was the greatest achievement among the Prussian people. So a game to sharpen one's military prowess fit perfectly into the Prussian Doctrine. It it, it was the ideal way to waste your time by becoming a better soldier. But even though the king liked it, it still kind of remained a very niche hobby, and it took a long time until actually the military started using it. But a long time isn't that long because he showed it to the king in the 1820s and he like 80 20 thinks, I think. And in 1840, 35 years later, they started actually okay. using it as a standardized way to teach Prussian officers. So by, by 1860, all Prussian officers were teaching, you call it until this day, the Reiswitzian war game because it was in the, the, the general idea would actually until this day not change anymore. Because he basically said all the basic ideas that, to this day, we need to make a war game. Um, How cool. And, But it was still only the Prussians that were playing it. Nobody else. George had died very early. He, he didn't see that this happened, which is kind of sad. Um, that is sad. When you say
0: died very early, what's early in 1800s uh, he died to
1: at, uh, th- uh, younger than we are he died at 30 years of age oh that is like really early and he was like 25 something when he showed it to the king and five years later he was dead well hey
0: here's the here's the repeating thing in this podcast all the best ideas come out of 25 year
1: olds <laughs> it's true, yeah. and like
0: um, that is a, shame a friend
1: though. of him later on wrote about him that he um he got kind of influential in the court and um, some people, like some of his friends later on said, like, like he was banished into into like an, a lower position because some people got jealous and kind of spread rumors about him. Uh, I was and, expecting
0: you to say that he made a crack about the king's sex life and got sent to the front,
1: but you know. No, that that was the other Wilhelm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it is the fate of all Wilhelms. So yeah, uh, but now something like George is dead, but something important happens. Mm-hmm. In 1816, they start using the Reiswitzian War Game, to teach Prussian officers. Then 10 years later, in 1817, and a, a, a big war happens. It is the so-called Franco-Prussian War, which, um, if you want to oversimplify the reasons for it, it was the um, a Prussian nobleman had a claim to the Spanish throne, um, but the French emperor did not like this. And thus the French declared war against the Prussians. And the war ended... Within less than a year, with the humiliating defeat of the French, they got completely crushed by the Prussians. And for, like, the astounding victory of the Prussians made everybody think, like, why did the Prussians win so clearly? Like, what happened here? Because the French were a military powerhouse as well. Nobody expected this. And one of the conclusions people somehow came to was drawn that the Prussians were good at war because they constantly played these weird war games. How interesting! And this is this is the moment when wargames started spreading around the world because we're like, oh, the, the Prussians did something right, and this, these they, they constantly like when you <laughs> visit them, they just sit around and play these wargames with these maps. And it's not that the Reiswitzian game itself spread, but instead, at this point, everybody was like, okay, they won the championship. We got to figure out how they did it, and so every kingdom started developing their own kind of war wargame. And all of a sudden, the European kingdoms had this culture of wargaming, and a good functioning military, basically a, a sigil of quality, was having a war game that was enforced upon the officer class. Mm, how interesting. And you have to imagine these officers, these military people, all of them also have a private life. And of course, all of them would also bring these private, these professional games into their home and so this this um success of professional wargaming basically accelerated the success of recreational wargaming which is an entirely different thing which we, which we will get into now because one thing you have to understand about the war wargame remember in John's wargame there was a clear win condition like you win if you conquer the fortress in the land in George's wargame this didn't exist George's war game did not have a clearly defined win condition because George was of the opinion that war is too complicated to make up win conditions. You just have to, the, the players have to kind of agree, like every player has to have their own objective and the game ends when they agree to end it because it's basically just to play through scenarios of war Interesting. and to see if, if you can come out on top, which actually from a recreational standpoint is boring. Hmm. It's not how you design designed a game to make. Though it I it.
0: would say that, so even just thinking about right. So I was just saying I just taught my wife her first game of Warhammer today, and even though the forces might be balanced in a way, like you know, modern war games might use points or things like that, or like I used to play a game called Malifaux and it uses like stones, like soul stones, which is really just another word for points. Um, even though you might say we're going to play a thousand point game and you both show up with a thousand points of units. And maybe you say, our main objective is to control these things in the middle of the board, you might have your own secondary objectives that you're trying to accomplish, which is kill their commander, or I need to complete this ritual, or I need to do this thing. And some of my most, like, the some of the memories I have... The best memories I have of playing wargaming is when there was this weird asymmetry. Like, we did things that didn't necessarily fit the sort of pitched battle mold, and those were really fun, even if they were completely unbalanced. And so... I don't know. I think there's some fun there, right? Like, I think there's fun to that's do, a like, point. a narrative yeah, thing absolutely. of, like, you know, my space aliens are trying to take these chaos worshippers off their ritual site and, like, you know, forming a narrative from that. Like, I think that's, like, that's almost, like, its own form of role-playing.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. To to give you an example of recreational war games, um, the author H.G. Mm-hmm. Wells um, once... Just before this um, First World War, met with a friend, and his friend started like they had these tin soldiers, and his friend started to um, use like a toy cannon to shoot at the tin soldiers, and they made a game out of it. And H.G. Wells basically um, published a book called Little Wars that basically designed rules around this whole concept of moving like tin soldiers around little model. Villages to fight each other, and you could actually lo- shoot little cannons at the soldiers to figure out if you defeat well, them. If or. I,
0: I know that there's like little cannons that you can put like powder in, and they'll like actually shoot like a little cannonball. Yeah. Is that what we're talking about, or was it like a, a I have like a thing?
1: picture of um, H.G. Wells' uh, Little Wars, and uh in the oh picture, God, look the at cannons shit. use like little. Oh, yeah, little cocks.
0: Oh this my is. god! Like, my dream life? Um, okay. So, like, <laughs> here's a bunch of fancy dudes all hanging out in full suits. Look at this guy in the background! He's got this huge, fluffy mustache, and they're, like, sitting around in a house, <laughs> and... It's literally like the floor is a war game. Okay. Like they just stepped into a fucking room of their house, and that room is just the war game room. And so there's like a little village next to the river with a bridge across it. And there's like all these fruffy men in their full suits looking so excited to like move all these little figurines around. And it looks like this guy in the front is pulling some kind of a string out of the back of a cannon. Like it's like, like he's going to pull it and it's going to fire. This is, so cool!
1: Yeah, and you can even see the little the little cork. In yes, front of the cannon. Like I think it's a cannon that shoots. Yes. The corks. Oh,
0: how cool! And see, like this is like the three D terrain, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, this is so neat. This would be a perfect why my fantasy battle. It
0: really right? would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh man, so cool! I'm totally into it. I'm going to send a picture of this to my wife and say, um, I would really like to have this in our house someday. And uh, we'll see what she says.
1: So yeah, actually Wells wrote like a rule book about how you could ruleify these kinds of role-playing wargamey things for recreational use at home. But what we have now is, I think, a pretty good timeline of the establishment of the wargame as a recreational game, right? So because we start out with this idea of teaching military basics to pages, and within around a 100 years, we go to having a, a recreational concept of a war game um, that is simply played for fun and not for, not, not for teaching um, war theory. Basically all of this happened due to it being credited to achieving a major victory in uh, a military conflict, which I f- which I find fascinating. Well, I think
0: what is fascinating about that is this really tracks with kind of the theme of this, right? Like once this became... Okay, so when you say, oh, we're all going to sit around and play with our little figurines... Right? People go, "Ah, look at that. A rec- look at th- look at them playing their little recreational game. Ha, ha, ha. And then suddenly, when you start winning wars, because the things that you taught, the t- or the, the things that you created that taught people actual skills, suddenly you have to start taking these things seriously right it's not just oh look at your little figurines anymore it's now a teaching aid that wins wars and so you are forced to have to look at it with some kind of seriousness
1: it's how funny neat. that you say it because um, Reis, George Reiswitz himself actually didn't want to call it a game but he didn't have a better name for it because he knew that the name game always would be ridiculed but he, he just didn't know how else to call it so he, yeah. he stuck with game but what is important now is that from this point on, where there is all of a sudden, there's actually recreational war games that are just published as recreational wargames. We have to maintain this clear distinction that there is something that is a professional wargame and a recreational wargame. And there is distinctions that you can make between them. Um, first off, one thing that I already mentioned, recreational wargames very often have a far clearer winning condition and also, recreational war games often recreate wars from the past, while the professional war game always, of course, has to stay within the current technological um, vicinity. Because you basically have to prepare for battles to come. You can't use old technology in the simulation to prepare for someone for future battles. How interesting! Yeah,
0: yeah. How <clears throat> I'm just like so fascinated by this. Thinking about like how you could use this as a tool for whatever purpose it is that you're trying to accomplish. Right. Like it could be a f- like, I'm thinking of how a friend and I, his favorite thing to do that we would do in grad school is he'd say, Hey, you ready to play Axis and allies? Let's do an Axis and allies night. And he would get like a really good bottle of wine and we would get <laughs> like a bunch of snacks and we would lay out the entire world, you know, for Axis and allies, which is a world war two game by the yep, way. Yep for those who haven't played it and we would just play war games and drink wine and laugh about how we were acting like the aristocracy of old right and it was kind of like our fun thing we would do but then you know you counter that with well what if you were actually trying to teach someone the skills they needed to conduct war like how would you do that and so i can understand the distinction that you're making
1: yeah i have two good examples of further professional war games though i don't have any Current ones that are played because are probably classified. Uh-huh.
0: Um,
1: sure. um, but one is the Germans played a war game specific to um, submarine warfare. Oh, just before the Second World War, which gave them a huge head start uh, in front of the other superpowers that had submarines, and for the first few years, basically made them win all submarine battles. Wow! Because they, they, they had. Possibility to develop tactics ahead of time. A different example that is probably closer to the to the U.S. Americans is there was a game called Spiel, um that was used to train the U.S. military and counter guerrilla operations during the Vietnam War. Because if you look at the wargaming of the Reichswitzen, it cannot be applied as easily to the warfare that took place in Vietnam. And if you know if like. Just a heads up, if you do not know a lot about the Vietnam War, because I think not everybody does, sure. um, there's one thing you need to know to understand what was special about Vietnam. Um, and like during the Vietnam War, there was the um, North Vietnamese Army and the Viet-, Viet Cong, and they fought against the Americans and the Southern Vietnamese Army. And especially the Viet Cong, they were infamous for using these so-called guerrilla tactics which means that they avoided any head-on confrontation um, due to technological disadvantage or lack in numbers. Basically, guerrilla tactic means that you do anything to defeat your enemy without ever confronting the enemy on the battlefield, because you would you would certainly lose on the open battlefield. So you'd lay traps, you'd ambush, you'd use civilians as cover, and you You basically win a war using guerrilla warfare by being undefeatable due to being not present while simultaneously slowly wearing down killing and demoralizing your enemy Mm -hmm. and these war games designed by john and george they were not capable of simulating something like that just just there was nothing for it so there there had to be games new games that were capable of basically simulating this kind of war environment to teach the officers because it was necessary to teach the officers to be able to kind of handle the problems that an officer would face in the vietnamese jungle so to just des- i can describe your tag speed a little bit tag speed sure. also used an umpire like the reiswitzian game um, but the fighting factions would actually like be played by several people and they would sit in different rooms and each of them would have different roles like everybody would have like be be a different officer and have different responsibilities that would basically then write down the orders and give them to the umpire and Hmm. um there also wasn't a win condition because as i repeated, this is a professional war game it's not about win conditions it's about elevating your position um and the, basically, the game concluded in slight shifts of advantage that you would afterwards analyze to basically analyze what you did, because it was supposed to simulate the actual situation an American officer would be facing within the Vietnamese jungle. I think it's 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 kind of a good example of how you have to adapt war games to current theaters of war, or otherwise you you they're useless. Yeah. Or at least they're useless
0: to that situation at hand. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh thinking about the like the multiple roles and stuff. Um, so since we last recorded, I went uh a bunch of my friends, um, basically I went with them to Gen Con in uh Indianapolis. And it's like one of the biggest board gaming conventions in the world. Um, I think what's what's the one in Germany that's like really big? I suddenly can't remember. Do you remember?
1: Uh I can't remember right now either. Okay, it's like
0: the US version of that,
1: okay? Yeah.
0: And one of the things that they talked me into, I think it was called a, a, a mega game, they called it. I might have some other name I'm missing, but essentially imagine like 50 people all go into a room and they all have roles and you're on a team and they go, okay, this is your team and who is going to be the master of coin and who is going to be the whatever? And then... Uh, Everybody had like delineated roles. And so at one point in time, they said, well, someone has to go serve on the council and vote on legislation. And everybody in my friend group just pointed to me and said, go. (laughs) Right. Because I'm like a political scientist. Right. It's like I eat this shit. Right. So uh, I would suddenly like I would go in and I would meet with the council and we would start passing legislation and we would say, I'm going to bring this thing against the nation of whatever for their crimes against whatever. And All these other things are going on in the other rooms where there's people with a map. There's people who are like managing the money. There's like the guy who's the leader and everybody would go tell him and he would make decisions. And so we all had our roles and it was really fascinating. I'd never played something like this before. It seriously needed some balance, but that's a story for another day. It was a fun role playing experience to sort of be in that situation in which you had a role and there were all these things that were outside of your control. Right. And they'd be like bad news from the front line. Oh man, we got pincer attacked by our allies, and we just lost all our forces. You need to go in there. That really cool. It was really neat. Yeah, so like, I, I I'd be like, oh, of course. Now I gotta go deal with the fucking political fallout of this. Great, thank you. Let me go smooth this shit over. You know, like, and so it was it was really fun.
1: Yeah, would recommend. Yeah. And I think that's probably kind of also the idea of tax bill. Yeah, that you kind of you learn how to to behave within. The, a singular responsibility, mm-hmm. instead of having to overthink everything. Right. Yeah.
0: You, it was just you became good at your one role, and then everyone yeah. else's roles affected what you were doing, and vice versa.
1: But how I cool. have an example of another um, recreational war game of the time yeah. that kind of is a contrast to um, to deckspiel, which was developed by Charles Swan, uh, Charles Swan Roberts. Uh, it was called Tactics. It was published by Avalon Hill in nineteen fifty four and the thing is that until Tactics was published, war games were popular. Mm-hmm. People played them, but they were never produced for the mass market. Like lots of people were playing war games. But they all kind of were had a lot of house rules or were not fully integrated. Like you could buy the Little Wars by HG Wells. Um, but you'd have to come up with the map and the soldiers and all that stuff. You you didn't buy a full set of things that let you just play the game. And Tactics had all of that integrated. I think I have a picture of Tactics for you. Okay, I cool. I have so many pictures, man, today, just for you. You can describe it. I love it. Yeah okay wow look at this box okay
0: the box says black and white and it has red letters and it says the new realistic land army war game and there are two guys in the background and it's kind of hard to see but i think one of them is smoking a cigarette because uh no i can't tell maybe that's something on the map in the back but regardless two people Uh, in like officer uniforms are like looking at this map and one of them is pointing because you know you have to point when you're looking at a war game The map itself is sort of a grid. Um, I'm trying to think of a good way. If any of you ever played Advance Wars or Wargroove or any of those kind of games that have sort of like a tiny grid. Wargroove
1: is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Wargroove is good.
0: Haven't played the second one, though. Uh, Slight aside, I was really annoyed that you can't get the War Wargroove is
1: a good example for how it looks. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was really annoyed that you can't get the true ending for Wargroove unless you go back and farm a (laughs) hundred stars. What a fucking stupid decision. (laughs) So mad. I had like 78 stars and I was like, I'm not fucking doing this. I'm going to YouTube. I'm done. Anyway, so it kind of looks like that. Um, Little pieces and little sort of like little squares, like little chits that have stuff written on them, it looks like. And then you can sort of move them around on the board and fight each other. Looks like like a red versus blue kind of thing
1: pretty neat yeah the team were actually called red versus blue oh
0: yeah. well i see and they based that on the popular youtube um the popular youtube series
1: yeah on that halo show
0: yeah, yeah on the halo show i think that what was that like 1947 that debuted something like that
1: yeah that yeah. no that debuted just before second world war yeah okay okay yeah you would yeah. know you're the yeah okay that makes sense
0: <laughs>
1: yeah uh anyway tactics mm-hmm. uh like, it came from an interesting point of view, because Charles Swan, the designer, he was actually in the National Guard during the Korean War. And even though, according to his autobiography, he kind of always wanted to see combat. Mm-hmm. He never did. So he kind of practiced war by himself, designing a game. And he writes that its commercial success was kind of an accident. He didn't really want it to be successful. And it had nothing to do with his skill at game design. Um, he was especially surprised that because his game was the first commercially successful mass-produced war game, and years later he was surprised that, like all of a sudden, the war game genre was huge. And he is actually also credited as being the father of war gaming, even though war games had existed for a long time. But he had made like a milestone mm-hmm. by making it mass market producible, right? And profitable. Um, he later also made a war game about Gettysburg, oh. which is a good example of that recreational war games often recreate um, battles from the past. If you don't know what Gettysburg is, Gettysburg was the turning point battle in the American Civil War. Right.
0: Um, I have
1: visited Gettysburg, actually. Cool. It's Is it nice?
0: It's pretty cool. Isn't yeah, it's it? pretty neat. Um, it's well. a very pretty place for all the horror that happened there but
1: oh yeah yeah
0: uh, did, so was the game called gettysburg or was it called something else do you know it was called gettysburg yeah. okay um
1: uh, also published by Avalon hill yeah
0: i was gonna say they're not nearly as popular or accessible as something like warhammer or you know any of the games workshop type things um but there are historical war games out there and i, I do know of some people who play them and um i'm in a big uh war gaming group like a locals thing and they have like a historical section they meet up and you know reenact historical battles i would also say that um there's a lot of world war ii uh war games what is the one is it called bolt action i cannot remember but i know that there's some world war ii ones that are sort of like historical things like that
1: um i bet yeah i i had something about a world war ii dogfighting war game like dog fighting not the dogs but the, uh, like airplane
0: fights yeah you're not making like dogs like like cute little pets fight each yeah. other i mean that's just pokemon yeah. so
1: it's 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 axis dogs with his allied dog
0: oh i see well that that tracks because you know you slap world war Two on any kind of war game and people just eat that shit up just sell it yeah just
1: give anything a hitler beard and-
0: <laughs> yeah it's a franchise oh my gosh um
1: there's okay, so many no, jokes I want to make a... and I'm not going to make them. I'm not going to do yeah, it. Just don't make them. Nope. Just, just don't do it. Nope. <laughs> okay, now we do have a we, we have a solid basis for wargaming um, mm-hmm. history. Um, But since we are still you you won't believe it, but this is a video game history. (laughs) Uh, I was going to say, we're
0: like two hours into this recording. I still have not (laughs) heard of a video I told
1: you in the beginning (laughs) that this will take a while.
0: (laughs) No, you know what's really great about this is I have always said to docs that, you know, like someday, someday I will do a Warhammer episode just because, I mean, it's just like it's everywhere now somehow it fucking i woke up one day and it became mainstream that's really strange to me and there's like so many warhammer like video games out there now and i was like someday i'll do a warhammer episode and one of the things i always struggled with was like well how deep do i get into the history of wargaming right
1: here we are and i did the deep dive for you you've done the deep dive you can do that I will actually not touch Warhammer, mm-hmm. so now you can do it cool and uh, i I did the groundworks another day another time um but we will we will touch with video games or we will try to touch video games now, okay um it's because the last missing link is actually um will actually be produced by a friend of mine because like I was asked to do an episode on. A sci-fi robot war game okay. called metal fatigue like more than a year ago and whoever like you you know who I'm talking about whoever if you're listening Robin I'm'm i I'm, I'm sorry there's nothing about metal fatigue like, there is a little bit of stuff <laughs> of metal fatigue I know who made it I know what it's about but it, it wasn't done during an interesting time of a company so I, I'm not this is this is the metal fatigue episode but I I went completely batshit crazy. <laughs> so we will actually find the missing link by actually closing the gap between the 60s with Tech spiel mm-hmm. up until Metal Fatigue that was published in 2000. So we're going to cover 40 years of history and how we turned this into a real-time war game, a real-time simulation.
0: You know what's really interesting? Um, uh, that, that Yeah. So to give you all, to open the curtain a little bit about how we produce episodes, that is actually pretty common um, On that we'll start with something and then it ends up in a different place. To give you an example, you guys know I did that series on 90s consoles, right? Like the transition between 2D to 3D. I'm sure you are sick of hearing me talk about it. Uh, but that started out because I just randomly wanted to do an episode on Ape Escape. If you've never seen Ape Escape, it's a game where you run around and you catch monkeys in a net. It's a whole thing. Um, loved that game as a kid. That ter- Me too. really cool. That ter- I, I was trying to do it. I couldn't find enough information to make a good episode out of it. Surely it's out there. But I started to abandon it because I got really into the controllers of that time and how the controllers were made and how the DualShock controller of the PlayStation became a thing. And then that just made me start looking at the PlayStation. And then I went, well, I can't just talk about the PlayStation without talking about the, And then suddenly I'm doing a five episode series on 90s consoles. It was originally just yeah, supposed to be Apescape. That was odd. Right. So like that chain of events is how I ended up there. So it totally makes sense. Sorry to your friend, I'm still
1: surprised that you pulled through. I'm really impressed. I did it. I fucking did it. (laughs) Okay. So let's start with our next founding father of Wargaming. Okay. And he's going to be the first one that is going to do a digital wargame, And his name is Peter Langston. I was hoping it was Peter Molyneux. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Peter Molyneux. Beans, Beans lots of beans, lots of beans, lots of beans. Anyway. Langston was one of those early game design free minds that we encounter so often. Mm -hmm. Um, He's just one of those guys that would count a game on a college computer for anyone to access if they like. And he designed a game that you maybe know, I don't know. it's, It's a game that you sometimes encounter as one of those old precursor games. It's called Empire. Okay. And he programmed the game Empire on an HP 2000 mini computer owned by the Evergreen State College. Wherever that is, I don't know. Somewhere, presumably. Um, And Empire was the very first 4X game. And 4X is a very popular video game genre that I think is fair to be described as a subgenre of the war game. I would agree. Even though 4X games differ from war games by being infinitely more complex, since they are not only about war, but about all the logistics and governance surrounding a warfaring nation as well. And I know that you do play four X games like Stellaris, but do you know what 4X stands for?
0: Oh, let me think. Exploit or no. Explore Expand Exterminate Exploit? Is that it?
1: Yeah. yeah. Did wrong, I get it? Wrong order, but almost, yes. It's explore, expand, exploit, exterminate. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. But I can't believe it off, it, it off. It off. nice. Okay.
0: Um, yeah. I was thinking about in the uh, so I was thinking about a jump that we could talk about at some point, I don't know if you'll do this, is even from that, the transition to real time, right? We
1: do that, yeah. Okay, but anyway, continue. That's an interesting jump, definitely, but we'll do the jump, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but it started with 4X games, and the, the interesting thing about Empire is that it's um, actually more an idea than a clearly defined game, and makes no sense right because how how is that possible with the game that the, there must be source code right that we can look at but i think maybe you already get it just because we encountered stuff like this before of that time um and the thing is that this was the 70s and things were a bit complicated <laughs> <laughs> well. so we haven't talked about video game design during that time for a while so i will kind of reiterate for people that haven't listen to that but the people that designed video games in the 70s very often did not do so to achieve like commercial success or anything but they just wanted to engage in the communal art Mm -hmm. of video game creation which is something that we saw several times like if someone like peter langston came up with a game and someone else would play it nothing would stop them from changing the game or creating their own version of it and even though we know of Langston that he did not like these changes people made to his game the general opinion of the people that made games at the time was that it was good to have this kind of culture of sharing source code as a communal property I'm
0: thinking of our uh, the episode that I did on adventure if you want a good um deep dive into what it was like back then that that comes to mind like will will uh will crowther and the whole idea of like spreading that game and things like that and how that sort of
1: expanded. also um, how an episode eight uh, in the PDP one episode in space mm-hmm. war yeah oh yeah yeah kind of program a game on that one computer and then it just spreads via disc mm-hmm. to different universities or didn't it also happen with Tetris? Um, uh, it just turned into something that kind of crippled academia in Russia. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so the original source code for Langston's. Uh, The thing is, the original um, source code for Langston's empire disappeared um, because the computer it was stored on was retired. So nobody had it. But the copies persisted. So the things that other people did to it and so many people played and liked his game that they simply remade it several times so there's like different versions of Empire from different authors and the original is unattainable so we don't know what it was like we just can't tell so the only thing we have is like this echo of the real thing which I think is kind of cool Um, Langston did remake his own game later on but at some point stopped developing it and just gave his source code to other people now one thing you know about 4X games right is that they often last long and Mm. dude Empire, to get into what Empire actually was, Empire took forever to play. Um, it kind of worked like this. So you had a map, and it consisted of tiles that had different attributes. Like some tiles would be agricultural or industrial or other things. And if you gain control of a tile, you basically would be provided with the resources it could provide. And then you could use these resources to acquire more units, to conquer more tiles. Basic 4x game loop. Right. And your turn would work like this. You would give your commands to the central server. And once a designated time passed, the server would execute all commands of all players. But it wasn't really clearly defined when these, like, refresh times happened. So, if you set your server to refresh once a day or once an hour, kind of depended on how fast you wanted to play. So sometimes people would just refresh once a week or once a day. And that could make an Empire game last like a year or several years because the the turns would take so long. That's so
0: cool because if it's all happening simultaneously, oh, wow, that's really interesting. What an interesting way to do that. Like, that's essentially offloading this umpire
1: uh that you would normally need right to a to a computer yes right how cool which was which was actually my first thought when i played when i read about the Reiswitzian game mm-hmm. that like why are they like the umpire is basically due to their lack of a computer mm-hmm. the umpire is a processor of commands and so i think that actually Reiswitz basically have the he had the mental capacity to 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 be a video game designer he just didn't have to have the tools right
0: well though i suppose as a teaching tool trying to get a human to understand your orders and then execute yeah. them is probably a better teaching tool for actual military strategy professional than... wargaming
1: especially right. yeah right but for to make your commands understandable
0: yeah. right so but again different different ideas of you know what you're Absolutely. trying to accomplish
1: so empire was very popular and within 20 years and up until the 90s there was dozens of different versions uh, all named empire or named after the machine they were designed for like there was xde empire for xerox machines there was amiga empire there was pc empire for dos and like there was very different versions of empire that all kind of different differed but they all originated from langston's empire and Empire was not the only 4x game at the time. Like Avalon Hill, the ones that did the tactics board game, um, also published um, Charles Swan's war games. They basically took all of their board games and turned them into video games. Okay. And and that didn't work out financially. Oh. Because simply turning board games into video games is not is is apparently not a way to succeed in video game, uh, in the video game market. Though, at this point, I must say that, for for example, Paradox Entertainment, the ones that made Stellaris, they started out as a board game company. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I didn't that's know actually that! actually something that they came from. What, what, so what kind of board games did they make? Do you know? I do not know. Okay. I started preparing a Paradox Entertainment episode a while ago, but mm. then never finished. And I just have in my mind still that that is their origin. And they just pivoted into video games and had more success with it. I would love to hear it someday. But. but the funny thing is that now they are doing board games again with the board game mm-hmm. version of Stellaris, right? Which I what...
0: kickstarted it. Oh my gosh. It's been in development yeah. for quite some time. I did see a prototype at Gen Con and I was like, oh my fucking God, this is the coolest thing. But no one is ever going to play it with me. <laughs> come come visit me in the US.
1: <laughs> Just, I, I will have a brief mention of the current state of the professional war game. Okay. But it will take until 1989 until we get a real-time simulated war game. And it's called Herzog 2. And I have a picture for you. Oh,
0: wow. Wait, was this called something different in the United States? I do not know. Oh, I'm... I tried to figure out. I am almost certain I have played this. Uh,
1: uh, uh, let me look this up real quick. Herzog... This was developed in Japan by Technosoft for the Sega Mega Drive. Yes,
0: I'm like so convinced I've played this. Um, But continue
1: on while I look at this. And you must understand that this game is the inspiration for all real-time simulation games. Like if you look at this, you will basically see every real-time sim that you've ever played. Mm -hmm. Um, Like this came before command and conquer this came before starcraft but it does very much look like these games
0: it really does um how cool i can't find that it has a different name but continue on
1: in the game you basically had to like in any real-time simulation game you basically you have a big map. you you can scroll over it then you, you can build a base and you build units that you can move around and you basically just try to conquer the enemy base. And the funny thing in that game was, which kind of made it like a MOBA um, game too, is that you, the, your cursor was a little fighter jet that could also fight enemy units. Oh, fun. And uh, it what I really like about it, if you look at the second picture that I sent you mm-hmm. and you others just have to imagine it, it has those really cool, 80s and 90s pixel graphics that are um, well-refined, and I really enjoy them.
0: I guess I didn't describe Um, this like I usually do. The cover, it says, Sega Genesis, uh, Herzog's Vi, 16-bit cartridge for use with the Sega Genesis Video Game Entertainment System, blah, blah, blah. But uh, the cover is like a fighter jet and you are behind the fighter jet and there are like these jets flying in fighting these giant mechs and there's like tanks on the ground. It kind of looks like, like if you told me this was a battle tech game, I'd probably believe you, but um, yeah, like fighter jets and bases and this mech in a very, as you said, like eighties, nineties sort of style. And then what it actually looks like is like, if you've ever seen Starcraft, like docs was saying, um, it's like a top down, um, overview of a Battlefield with, like he said, pixel graphics. Very cool.
1: Like StarCraft, but a, a, a good bit simpler, but it also came 10 years earlier. Sure, and on a home console, not a PC. So Herzog 2 was a commercial success, but it wasn't the, the huge hit. Um, what truly made the RTS game popular then was Dune 2, the second part of the Dune RTS game. And this was published in 1991, and later on in 1993, again for the DOS and the um, Amiga and the Mega Drive by Westwood Studios. Do you know what else Westwood published? I do not off the top of my head. Westwood is the studio that made the Command Conquer games. Really? If you, look, if you look at Dune 2, it just looks like Command Conquer 1, like the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's basically very clearly the inspiration for what would then become for a long time the most successful real time sim- um, simulation franchise command conquer is dead now but it was super successful hmm. from the 90s to the early 2000s how interesting
0: um, yeah i could see i can see the different flavors of of what eventually became starcraft here because i guess that would have been
1: what like eight or nine years later then command and Con- um, well command and conquer came out in 1995 and starcraft then three years later 1998 okay okay and i remember like did you ever play command and conquer or starcraft
0: i played a little bit of command and conquer but starcraft oh my gosh starcraft gripped me so strongly yeah. it absorbed like god how old would i have been probably from 14 to 16 i just played so much starcraft it was when i sort of like hit my blizzard phase like i had never heard of blizzard entertainment except like yeah. a neighbor had like warcraft 2 and would show it to me and i was like what the hell is this but starcraft oh my god starcraft it just gripped starcraft me. was
1: so well refined it really I think was it's the peak of war gaming and maybe I'm, i have bias because i played so much starcraft as well mm-hmm. i think starcraft it has everything that RTS games need. There's nothing else you can add. Yeah, and everything that was added upon is just like flavor. I would agree. Um,
0: I feel like because of the competitive scene that like StarCraft is really interesting and we could talk about it sometime, um just as its own episode, but like StarCraft like really kicked off like a competitive gaming scene that like I think kind of didn't mean, Starcraft exist. StarCraft in
1: Korea is as big as soccer is in Europe.
0: Yeah, it's, it's nuts. And so like Starcraft two, how do you follow that up? And I have some, like, I have some qualms about Starcraft two story, but that's completely vestigial to the core experience yeah. of three balanced factions that you can play competitively. And it's still played competitively. And like, I have like a real beef with blizzard right now. So, but like, there are times when I think, yeah. about, when I think about like, maybe I'll just install Starcraft and do nothing for like four days, like just nothing for like four days, I love StarCraft man. Oh yeah. my god. But just to reiterate,
1: yeah, Dune 2 was basically the 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 popular basis um for 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 real-time simulations. And Herz- Herzog 2 um, established the technology,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um the concept uh in video games. And then it peaked in StarCraft. And now we have so many real-time simulation games. Though now that I think of it, kind of has dwindled down right there isn't many rts games anymore yeah market is kind of oversaturated with them and they never touched it again
0: i guess it i guess like it depends on what you call a real-time strategy i would say that i have played several games in the last few years that had real-time strategy elements but that the um, like what did i play last year something called crying Suns. i think it was like an indie game i played that was sort of like a mixture between ftl's like story concepts of yeah. like you go to the thing you do a check you do whatever but then the battles kind of like ftl were like these like, top-down real-time strategy games between ships um so like that exists and obviously there's still 4x games out there like that
1: maybe it's maybe it's better to say that the industry kind of evolved out of it that's a better way to put that kind of diversified the idea into 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 more faceted uh games are not just an rts game
0: i could see that and i mean perhaps maybe there are tons of rts games out there that we're not seeing and we're just terribly
1: uneducated right
0: i mean we can only play so many video games or know so many things so
1: yeah, I, I, I only play Baldur's Gate, so I, I have no clue what video <laughs> games there are there.
0: You know, someday it would be really fun if you and I did a um, like a co-op Baldur's Gate. I think that would be super fun. But I should probably beat the game first.
1: Yeah, uh, okay. And now, after um, StarCraft, we get to Metal Fatigue. And I noticed that in my notes I have not written down where Metal Fatigue was published, and now I look it up. And the cool thing about Metal Fatigue is that it is fu- it is um fully 3D and it absolutely was only published 2 years after StarCraft mm-hmm. which was still a a 2D game and now to get into metal fatigue um metal fatigue was made by a company that we already encountered, which is Psychosis. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, psychosis they made, as we have episodes about it, uh, Lemmings and GTA. Mm-hmm. And as we learned in the Lemmings and GTA episode, Psychosis were actually not into cute puzzle games, which Nintendo thought for a while after they saw Lemmings. Mm-hmm. But actually, Psychnosis. Only they—they basically only want to make games about violence and gore, <laughs> and uh, want want to show as much blood as possible on the screen. Sure. And meta fatigue is kind of in line with that, <laughs> um, because in the game you control, like, you are this corporate faction, and most of the game is the usual real-time simulation gist, you have a map, you build stuff, you build units, uh, you gather resources, you have to explore the map. But instead of soldiers, you have these huge mechs. Mm-hmm. And they can be edited, like a warrior. Oh! And you can put different arms and torsos and legs on them. Oh. And the most fun part about it is that you can actually when you defeat another mac you can salvage it and just graft the other body parts onto your mac oh
0: this it's is just so really cool. cool
1: this like is it's, it's so really cool. vis- it's really visceral mm-hmm. and, and it had a lot of really advanced technology because Technosis was already pretty good with 3d stuff they did a lot of 3d stuff for nintendo before um when they did that Alien shoot 'em up game that was far too violent for Nintendo's taste, but they did it anyway. Right. Um, it had like fully 3D graphics. It has impressive features, like you could tilt the camera and look at the units from all sides, which was really cool. Um, the vehicles would tilt with the terrain. And for huh. a game in the year 2000, it was, it's actually, I must say, it has pretty impressive technology just in the timeline of what developed when um video game wise and yeah that is metal fatigue and this is basically how i made a metal fatigue episode for a friend of <laughs> mine by talking for two hours about war game history uh
0: this episode is great i think it has something for everyone
1: uh and i'm really glad you did it yeah one thing we can we can basically finalize this on so hmm Metal fatigue is a great game. You can actually buy it on Steam. I recommend it. Um, it's uh, it, it looks cool. I played it a while. Uh, I I would try it out. Um, the last thing I wanted to do was to look at war games that are not for recreational use, but. At still professional use that are used at the time. And there's a publisher called GMT Games. They have like a whole variety of board games that try to simulate probable future conflicts. Okay. But they are not video games, they're actually board games. I didn't find any video games that try to simulate war. I read about some stuff that was used in the 70s and 80s to simulate certain war scenario on computers. Um, but the only thing I found for today was the stuff by GMT games where there's like one game that simulates war in Iran and one game that simulates mm. war in Korea and in Poland and India and Taiwan. Like all the possible future theaters of war that hopefully not happen, but yeah, could possibly happen.
0: Let us hope that that like remains a... a work of fiction.
1: Absolutely. And uh, that is basically it. Uh, I have oh yeah I've run a source for a digital um, war game that was turned into a recreational one in the seventies and eighties. There was this game in the Navy called Sea and Nav and it was um, adapted to a recreational war game by a friend of Tom Clancy, who was called Larry Bond, and he turned it into a game that was called Harpoon, which was about sea warfare and. I think this is all the things I wanted to say in the end, and this is my entire Wargame episode. This was the episode about Wargames. Do you have any concluding thoughts about all that stuff I just said? So, I think that what you did in this episode is
0: something that I always find to be really interesting, is how, you know, this is very, very broad, but, like, all of human history, in many ways, is built on what came before Right. In ways that you don't often think about. Right. So when I go, man, I loved Starcraft, like totally changed my life as a teenager. And when I think about how, you know, I might not have had Starcraft if some guy didn't end up becoming friends with a general and then lose his job when a prince died, like hundreds of years previous. Like, I think that stuff is pretty cool. So that's what sticks out to me. And also, like, I was really fascinated by you talking about how, like, they were used as a teaching tool. And then, you know, people didn't really pay them much mind until they started losing wars. That was fascinating to me, too. Right? Because you're kind of, like, forced to then reconcile
1: with those kind of things. So, yeah, that's what sticks out to me is really cool. That was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. what I? Also, I I think that it's... Basically, if Helwig and George wouldn't have done it, I think someone else would have, because I think the the basic idea of it in this environment of constant war, war in combination with the Enlightenment movement and scientific advancement, the idea of getting better teaching methods was kind of inevitable. So I think the war game was coming, if you want it or not. And I don't have evidence that Reiswitz was directly inspired by John, but uh, by John Helwig, and these these chains of influence are are probably infinitely complicated. Um, but I think having this this simplified timeline gives us an easier time because I was thinking about doing longer episodes simply about real time simulation games like Command and Conquer gives us a very good basis. So this is basically like the college course that you have to visit before you can do the college course on Command & Conquer and Starcraft, the cool stuff. So if you listen to this, we will allow you to listen to the next real-time simulation and wargame <laughs> episodes.
0: <laughs> yeah, you have the... to
1: hand in your assignment before the uh, 1st of January.
0: It's true. And if you fail, then you're going to have to do it again. You're going to have to come back and listen to this. I want to <laughs> to listen All... to the entire episode one more time.
1: <laughs> And the oh, next test gosh. is going to be harder.
0: Mm-hmm. Docs, what race do you think I played in? Uh, what I, what race do you think I played in StarCraft?
1: You're not you're not a Zerg, uh, which, which is not a compliment. Um, okay, so you're close. I, I think I I think you're a Protoss. Oh, I'm so a Protoss player. Absolutely, yeah, I was a Protoss player. I mean, yep. I mean, you play, don't you play Tau? I do. In, yeah, so you have to play Protoss, right? Yeah. yeah. So. You know, there's actually I some always. I always played Zerg. I'm Zerg
0: I can see all it. the way.
1: Yeah, you're a Zerg player for sure.
0: <laughs> oh, I was totally a Protoss player. I very much liked the heavy, expensive units that you could do a lot with if you like micromanage them well. But I like to say they that, were
1: but so strong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. uh
0: But I like to say that. But what I really mean is that I really like to just make a big death ball that no one could stop, and then I would just, you know click the
1: whole thing and send it. I just have to reiterate what a good game StarCraft 1 was. And the multiplayer
0: community? Fuck, the modded maps? That was insane. It really was. It was just so nuts, what people managed to create with that. Yeah.
1: I'm so sad that it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Because it's not the same.
0: That's true. I mean, well, Blizzard just keeps killing all of their intellectual property, but that's a sad place to leave this episode. So, um, docks... Thank you so much for this. This was fun, and uh, I love Doc's episodes because you and I conceptualize what an episode can be and how we would think about an episode in very different ways. And so this, your episodes very much break the mold compared to mine, so I always really appreciate it. Thank you. It was
1: a f- very fun to record another one.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess that's it for us. Uh, see you all in eight months when we do another one of
1: these. <laughs> Probably. <Poor laughs> oh my <God. laughs>
0: Um, be good to each other out there um, you know and drop us a line sometimes we love to hear from people
1: see you around guys bye catch you later
0: Andre will fix it. Andre's gonna fix it. Here he comes with his magical software. Andre's gonna fix it. Andre's gonna fix it. Here he comes with his magical software. Andre's gonna fix it. My
1: cat's looking at me funny. Funny cat looking at me. It's
0: cat that's looking funny. Funny cat. Okay, shall we Super Mario Brothers it?
1: Okay. So is this
0: the part where we, um, we hit stop? Do we hit stop at this point? Oh god, okay, I'm gonna hit stop, I'm, I'm very scared.